plus, I was also thinking, I was like, well, there's something I know Joel wants to talk about. <laughs> well, I mean, must we? <laughs> I mean, I think we must. everybody to another episode of the motor mouth podcast the podcast where a lot of great ideas go absolutely nowhere my name is joel tyree and with me as always is my esteemed co-host the ghost of tim gerard hello (laughs) oh two episodes running it's my favorite joke (laughs) (laughs) all right two topics enter sanity left a long long time ago i'm going first we're doing the moon Knight trailer people i it's it's a good day to be joel (laughs) <laughs> like it is everything's coming up joel <laughs> it's crazy how like specific to my tastes like art has become or popular culture has become this granular superhero that i found in a used bookshop in breckenridge and just like was car sick reading it on the way home because i'm like what the hell is going on with this dude there's three people in there moon knight disney plus trailer dropped we got to talk about it. Tim, what did you bring? Uh, so we're going to talk about the uh, my winter semester at Berkeley Online, which just started. So new classes, new topics, new gear, all that stuff. New Tim. Yeah. New student, new GPA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so listeners, we just rewatched the trailer. I think this is the 75th time I've watched it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm losing my fucking mind. I watched it. So they... they announced that they were going to show it during the wild card game um, on uh, MLK day and no interest in those teams, no interest in football really, unless it's the Broncos and we're doing okay. And there's enough dip to make me feel better if we do worse. Like that's the, those are the conditions. Those are my conditions and I will not debate them. And so we watched kind of muted through the, the, um, and then we, we didn't even, that's the thing. They said, we're going to drop the trailer on this day. And then didn't say when, like what time. And then they said after halftime, after you'd watched a quarter worth of football. They're, they're, they're smart. They knew what they were doing. They got a whole bunch of nerds to watch. So I watched the Simu cast with um, the Into the Night podcast group that uh, uh, all those Aussie uh, Moon Knight fans, we have that uh, big Facebook group that I'm a, a part of and I love. And all the, the memes come from there. And the, I guess Moon Knight core does a lot of the shit posting and a lot of the author of the Dracula meme is uh, mid moon night core. So I, those guys have been going crazy. I watched them watching the thing and I have never been so antsy watching a football game. I had no idea what the score was. I was like, Oh my God, this is hap-. Cause like Tim, it's such a big deal that they were like football Monday night football moon night gets to get shown to the world for the first time. It's like, I, I keep tr- pinching myself. Like, they they believe in this character. They're pushing this character. It's not like they're embarrassed by it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's just so cool that they're like Ethan Hawke, fucking Oscar Isaac, fucking Monday Night Football Marketing, fucking like 
it's it's I'm pinching myself constantly about it. And it's just so watching it in real time. I I didn't stay in my chair for two seconds. The set like I it was like it's it's incredible. It, this feeling like to to they're they're doing the the standard deviation from the the comic book origins with this. It seems like they're they're going from a different angle than usual. It looks like we're only going to get two of his personas to start. Stephen, who has a British accent, which we'll talk about, <laughs> and then Mark, who we don't hear speak. Um, but that doesn't mean Jake won't show up later. I kind of have a theory, and I'm going to say it here so that I can say that I said it. I think in the, the last episode or two, we're going to get a, like a post-credits where a villain will have gotten into a taxi thinking they've escaped, and then it will be Moon Knight, Jake Lockley, turning over his shoulder and having picked him up, and that's the end, and it's like he's in the streets. He's, he's back in, in Chicago fucking shit up. Like that's That's my theory. That's my, like the game is on moment for the series. That's what I'm, I'm kind of thinking. So, um, yeah. So watching it, like I didn't stay in my seat. I was up like the second I saw the flash of Khonshu, they're doing it, Tim. They're doing seven foot bird skull fucking Khonshu. And I, I've never been happier, man. Like I, it, so Khonshu is one of those characters where it's like in the comics, there's different interpretations. More recently, we've gotten him as like an actual force in the world um, that if nobody else can see, like Mark is like things are being affected by like, so the age of Khonshu, like the Avengers versus Moon Knight run that they did in the Avengers. That was kind of Khonshu was a physical presence. He was moving things around. He was taking Mjolnir from Moon Knight at that point. Um had nothing to do with being worthy. It was just that Uru, the the rock from which Mjolnir is uh, forged, is essentially moon rock. So <laughs> he can control it because moons. Nice. Um, <laughs> that's a great uh, Jason. I think it's Jason Aaron did that run. He's, that's a great Jason Aaron comic book excuse, like throwback. It's like, ah, it's essentially moon rock. Let's do that. Um, but it was unclear. Like, we didn't know if we were just going to get a statue because a lot of the early comics is just kind of a statue sitting there kind of with the moon lighting it behind and kind of making its eyes glint, like it's winking, those kinds of things. That's the early going stuff. Then we have just like a full on hallucination that only Mark is seeing. It's not really affecting anything in reality, but just him and what he's seeing. And then we've had him like a physical presence who who shows up and will possess Mark at different times. It's, it's a really interesting character, a really important character. And there was kind of a rumor mill about whether Ethan Hawke will be playing that character we have confirmed that he is not because uh, we now have the um, subtitle text of who's saying what in the trailer and he's playing a character called Arthur Hawley Hager Hagar something like that it's character from the second series of Moon Knight Fist of Khonshu only ran six issues kind of a joke in the community honestly when I started collecting a lot of people disliked that run I didn't think it was that bad it kind of made Moon Knight kind of beholden to this group of um, Egyptian priests who were actively worshiping Khonshu and kind of like summon him, which I thought was kind of a cool concept. So the second issue in that series, which skyrocketed in value the second that trailer hit because we identified who that was. And it went from a dollar on eBay to 50 in that much time. So um, the collection is strong over here. <laughs> um, so the, the that character that Ethan Hawke seems to be playing is it seems to be an amalgam of the Sun King, which is a character I'm not 
that fond of, who's kind of an avatar of Ra, has pyrotechnic powers. Um, he's basically like kind of a flirty Kurt Cobain <laughs> in in the. So he and uh, there's there's definitely some kind of like sexual tension between him and Mark, which is kind of cool. Like I definitely ship them, but I didn't like that character very much just because at the end of that run, he kind of got really wordy. I am speaking a mile a minute and I just realized like how stopped up the the flow was dude like I I have been <laughs> bursting to talk Moon Knight like nuance and niche shit for ages so thank you for uh, witnessing it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so so that character um, Sun King it seems like it's an amalgam of that and this earlier character who is a um, kind of physic like neural scientist who takes kind of a Nazi experimentation on the human mind as a way of, he has a disorder that's contorting his face um, and it's agonizingly painful. So he's trying to, he has a pain theory where if you expose the body to enough pain, it will stop feeling pain and then you don't have to live with pain, which is obviously super villain shit. And also he's a Nazi. And because Mark Spector is, has a Jewish background, his father was a rabbi that's a really great center. Like it, it's such a smart move. I'm I'm really impressed. They went back to something obscure from the lore, kind of an untouchable character. Cause this character was really scary, really compelling and got away at the end. So it was like, Oh, we might see him again. So like, it's kind of like bringing it out from the past, this really cool compelling. And so like, and then I was talking to Tyna about this, like, it's so cool to see that somebody who's familiar with pain and who's going to, be manipulating pain and making like drones who cannot feel pain as a villain for moon Knight, who's all about bone breaking inflicting mm -hmm. bloody vengeance so it's going to be like in, in, in unstoppable force immovable wall like it's just going to be a great i just totally psychologically like the way those two are kind of poised like that was it, it's brilliant like i'm already I, that, that was a big faith thing to see kind of okay this is a character from from the lore and not so, like it, there's not enough of it for us to be beholden to a certain interpretation of that character. It's one issue so they can do whatever they want with it. And I it's I, it's just they're putting so much. I mean, they put Kid Cudi in the fucking intro soundtrack like I, I'm I'm blown away. Like when when I got I came to Kid Cudi really late I, when Eminem did a, a collab with him, they did Moon Man and Slim. As like, and then I went back into his discography, and Kid has this huge like obsession with the moon, and it was like, I, at that time, I was like, oh, that would be a cool like if they could make these things like, and because Kid's kind of like an all like nerd, like he, he's a big nerd, so it's just kind of like this alt hip hop scene with Moon Knight, who's kind of an obscure comic book, and it, it's match made in heaven. Like I was like in my head, I was like, that kind of sounds like Kid. Is that Kid? And it's like, oh my god, it's Kid Cudi. They put him in the... Like, it's like they're pulling shit out of my brain, Tim. It's crazy. So I've spoken for a while. Uh, what did you think of the trailer? <laughs> well, so first of all, I want to go back and say that you're you're a bigger fan than I am, because when the Matrix sequels trailers dropped during the Super Bowl halftime show, I just waited for that shit to show up online. I, I will not watch football. And that was a more difficult to access online. Back when those sequels were being dropped, you there was some waiting time. You might have seen yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. I think I don't think I think it was past the point of dial up. So I think you know, it's slightly better. <laughs> yeah, but uh, 
but yeah, I, I think of the line on uh, Aqua Teen Hunger Force where Master Shake says, I will not walk so that a child may live. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I will not watch football so that I may watch a Matrix trailer. <laughs> so yeah, so first of all, I mean, I guess, you know, if you're if you're okay with watching sports sometimes, it's not that big of a of a sacrifice. But yeah, I was like, I'll wait. Um but but yeah, like it was, you know, and it, and it's one of those things I think we've talked a little bit before about sort of like my experience with Moon Knight. And um so I'll quickly try to run through some of that. So some of it, you know, just being that um I I discovered Moon Knight with the first series of Marvel trading cards. So I never knew who he was and then saw the training card. I was like, oh, this guy looks awesome. Like this is totally like I just based on his costume and a little bit of back his backstory alone. Um I'm a huge fan of like ancient Egypt and the mythology and, you know, it's just like really cool. And it's like one of those things that like, you know, I'll probably never get to go visit it, but I would love to go to Egypt. Like that would probably be like my, my thing where it's just like, Oh, like pyramids and all this really cool stuff. And um, although I'd probably end up like getting a curse or something. Cause I'd be like, the type of person. It's like, don't touch this thing. It's like, I really want to touch. I'm it. touching it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Even if I'm cursed, it'll be cool. <laughs> yeah. It'll be worth it. Um, so that was the, a lot of the part that really kind of drew me to him. Um, I, I think, you know, at that time too, like we, you know, we really didn't have the internet to be able to like, oh, I'm going to order a bunch of issues online. It was just whatever you happen to find in the comic book store that you could walk to. Cause I, yeah, I don't even, I don't even think I could drive at that point yet. Um, so, so yeah, so I really didn't get much into Moon Knight stories. Um, yeah, I, I knew who pretty much like none of his villains were probably until, uh, until I talked to you about it or, oh no, that's right. The, the David Finch, like that Moon Knight series that he drew, I think they kind of do delve a little bit, but I mean, that was also me kind of coming into it, like after the fact, like, Oh, I guess he's injured. I don't know what's going on. You know, I just remember it being very bloody and gruesome and, and yeah. graphic and detail that I loved it. Um, you know, and it was a great way of, I think, you know, I'm get I, I got the idea that Moon Knight had kind of been out of it for a while and this was their way of bringing him back into it. Um, I know that they were at one point, I think like with, uh, in the ultimate comics, they had brought in ultimate moon Knight, And right. he was kind of, I think, I think, and at that point, I think they were exploring the idea of like the multiple personalities, but I think because he was kind of brought in as a side character, they didn't deal with it that much. I think he, mm. he showed up in like ultimate Spider-Man. Um, so, so yeah, so it's like, I, I feel like I had this really disjunct kind of idea of who he was. And I was like, well, I like the costume. I like the idea. Um, I will admit it almost like disappointed me when they kind of were playing with the idea of like, Oh, it's not really this Egyptian God. It's all in his head. So I do like if there's a degree of, well, is it in his head or isn't it? You know, I like, I'd rather at least have that than just like, no, it's just his, it's another one of his multiple personalities and that's it. There's no supernatural aspect at all. Um, so that's we, one of the things I'm sorry in the synopsis, because they gave kind of like a series synopsis. They oh. like, refer to like he gets tangled up with egyptian gods like so they, they've confirmed the supernatural like oh, nice. they're not gonna just do thor and odin and shit they have a whole pan there's a bunch of pantheons to play with like yeah that's the thing i feel like if you're gonna bring in norse mythology and be like oh it turns out this is real too like why not do that with egyptian mythology and you know i mean you know like with the eternals you know we've got this alternate view of like the origin of the earth and all this stuff so it's like yeah, if you're bringing in all these cosmic elements, why not? You know, maybe we'll even get to see, you know, the 
Stargate and Kurt Russell and James Spader. Who, I mean, <laughs> we heard James Spader, but we didn't see James Spader. And, you know, diff- we know that different people can play different comic book characters. So it'd be kind of neat to bring that in, like, Conchu Stargate. <laughs> you know, like, I, I'm usually hesitant to agree to the, the amount of meta shit that you like. <laughs> but because I love Stargate so much... <laughs> I would fucking love a Stargate Moon Knight crossover. That would be amazing. That could be our You idea. heard it here first, folks. Right. It happens. It was our idea that goes nowhere. Oh my God. That's um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so so I mean for with the the, the trailer, like I, I think what one of the things that I that I'm really excited about with a lot of the Marvel stuff in general now is it's getting into all this territory that I don't know a lot about. You know, mm. like all the stuff you know the, the the past marvel stuff it's like you know yeah like i had read a ton of the you know the avengers stuff post um bendis's avengers avengers disassembled like right. that's kind of where i jumped in on the avengers because the stuff before that i was like this is boring this is dumb that was i feel like a point it was a way to kind of reboot the avengers without kind of like disregarding what came before it's like no right. we're gonna tear them down but then we're gonna build them back up again with this sort of like all-star cast of avengers and between that and then the ultimates and the ultimate universe, um, I think a lot of that is what they drew on to kind of put the Avengers together modern day. So, so a lot of that stuff, you know, I kind of knew where things were coming from. I knew the references, you know, um, but I feel like now there's a lot of stuff that's happening that I'm just like, I, I don't know what that is. So I'm just along for the ride, you know, and um, you know, so that's really cool. And, and, you know, Moon Knight's one of those things where, like I said, most of what I know now is from you, but I'm not attached to anything. So I get to just be like, here's the Marvel universe of Moon Knight and be like, cool. Yeah, let's do it. You know, it's like, I don't have any preconceived notions or any expectations for like, oh, I hope they do this storyline, not this storyline. Um, from what you said just now about uh, Ethan Hawke's character and how they're bringing him in. Like, yeah. it seems like right up their alley where, yeah, they would do this amalgamation of like, yeah, like, we're not going to take one character that's like word for word who he is in the comic books. Like, we're going to kind of put together this best of villain, which I think in general, like with any of the comic book movies is really smart because like, you don't have the time that comic books have, you know, like to be like, oh, well, we're going to have you know, the Norman Osborn Green Goblin and then the Harry Osborn Green Goblin and then the Hobgoblin and then the different iterations of the Hob, you know, it's like, you know, you sometimes get this amalgamation of goblins, you know, and it's like, let's, let's take the best parts of all of them. And I get that, you know, and I mean, who the fuck cares about the Hobgoblin anyway, whatever. It doesn't have the connection that Green Goblin has. Um, That's a cool suit. I like that suit too. I, I, yeah, I like how it's like, it's like, what did you like dip the Green Goblin suit in bleach and it altered all the colors or something? Right. Like, you know, like that's, it's, it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool that he's like this offshoot wannabe, you know, mercenary, like, um, but yeah, like, I think what I didn't like about it is with the, the two Green Goblins, you've got this intimate connection with Peter Parker yeah, and then this is just some sure. guy. Um, but anyway, so back to Moon Knight, but, but I, yeah, I like that. It's like, if you, if you've got these kind of scattered villains all throughout and aspects of them that you can kind of tie in and be like, well, yeah, let's create a, a new villain from kind of all the best parts of other villains. Like that's, that's great. Um, yeah. And like, from what it looks like, he's almost like this, like cult leader kind of thing. Yep. So like, part of me is almost like, okay, does that, yeah, does that tie into, the Egyptian stuff, you know, or is it his own cult, you know? And, um, well, cause he's got, he has an alligator headed cane and he's in the background. I mean, I've seen a million of these like Easter egg things. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm definitely stealing all of these things. These aren't things I noticed all 
But in, like when Mark is moving away from the, the two paint mirror and the two reflections stay looking forward in the background, that appears to be an alligator statue. When oh, okay. he, he gets the phone call, the background of that is also right, an alligator. So that there's definitely some, um, and somebody was one reaction video I was watching was react. There's a, I think it's Sobek is the alligator god, and Ra have a there's a fusion form of them, which might be kind of a way that they're making the Sun King kind of more come together. And it's cool because like in in Lemire's comics and kind of post that there was this Sobek was the um that was a god that was manipulating Mark by pretending to be his therapist. So mm-hmm. he was kind of trapped in this mind prison and um by her and he she didn't look like an alligator to him but like later you he punches through the illusion and, and you can <laughs> see him punch an alligator god in the face which is really cool um <laughs> but like so it's cool like they're 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 hinting at stuff it's it's just like it's it's a great amalgam like i'm 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 definitely when i was watching the the teaser and then the trailer again the, the thing that keeps coming back to mind is the the interpretation of civil war in the mcu the way they kind of twisted that story into the shape it was and made it work and Mm -hmm. the fact that they they took um uh um baron zemo and paired him down to like a really simple understandable villain compelling strong manipulative like that that was brilliant and and it it really made it feel intimate and it it had this great it was in the spirit of it felt like okay i could kind of see like in this version of the marvel universe this is definitely how the civil war would have unfolded without yeah. atlanteans or mutants or the the young avengers or new avengers or whoever the speedball was and who becomes right. penance who's the warriors the, yeah dude if we ever get an appearance by penance in a movie I'll just have to be done. Yeah. I'll just have to like yeah. lay back and not move because I've gotten everything yeah. I could possibly want. It'd be so hard though. Cause part of what makes Penance so badass is like, like the history of speedball, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. how he's been this silly kid. All, like they'd almost have to take someone like from the, the pre-existing Marvel universe and be like, we're going to take who's the, the, the most innocent, youngest, most loved character and turn that person into penance, you know? Oh. Cause like, I feel like you can't just have penance show up out of nowhere. Right. You don't care. You know, it's right. like, you know, and, um, cause aren't those kids, no, it's new warriors, right? Like warriors, that's yeah. right. That, and isn't that team like a part of a reality show or something? That's, yeah. That's what the, eventually they were just a, a young superhero team, but that's kind of what it morphed into. And I think, yeah, that was the idea of like, Oh, let's, let's capitalize on this whole idea of like, you know, kids videotaping everything and yeah. And reality TV and that kind of coming together and that combined with the fact that it's like, Oh, you're too young to be doing this. Like you're not seasoned yet, you know? And it's like, yeah, let's go back. Let's go after this super villain. Who's like a human nuclear bomb. Let's just do it. You know, like not thinking of, you know, how badly that could go. (laughs) Dude, that like, I could see that being a Disney plus series. Like, they could they could kind of lean into it being kind of like a um almost like a CW averse like yeah. sexy teen drama one, but then it gets right. real like and it it has the quality of writing and not that those shows are all garbage, but I have not enjoyed them when I have watched them. Right. But. Yeah, 
Um, well, and that's the weird thing too, is I think that series had been going on for a while as a reality show. So it's like, that's the other part of it too, is like, you know, I think a lot of that might've worked because we saw like various iterations of the new warriors. Whereas if they just mm-hmm. kind of started it and kind of threw all these new characters at you. Um, I mean, then again, like we are getting a lot of younger superheroes now, like that second generation of, yeah. are coming in. So, I mean, if they did something like that, where instead of the new warriors, where it's like, okay, we have the Avengers and then new warriors are a bunch of kids just kind of doing their thing. I mean, I guess they could always do something that like that early on, like, I don't know if they're planning on doing a young Avengers or mm-hmm. if this group is just going to become the Avengers or maybe make them the new warriors. Yeah. Like, so, yeah. So I think, I think for penance to have the impact that he had, like, I think it would have to be, here's this fun loving character that everyone loves. Who's super silly and like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, even, even more kind of childish and goofy than Spider-Man at the time. I remember that was one of the big things is like, you know, we've had Spider-Man who was this silly teenage superhero all along. And then we get someone who's like sillier and goofier than him and more kind of bungling and then kind of not really seeing him grow up all that much. And then it's like, Oh, now you're fucked, you know, kind of thing. So, so I would love to see that. And I don't know if they've got plans for that. Um, but you know, that would be, that would be a fun thing to see, but yeah, you'd, you'd have to see the, the, I guess it's not a decline of that character because it's instantaneous. It's not a gradual right. thing. It's like, but you would you have know. to know and love him for right. that, that yeah. really to land in the way that it does. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that's the thing is we don't have enough young superheroes that we love as of right now. Right. Um, but yeah, like I would definitely love, like to see that in the future where it's just like, you know, you fucked up and just like, God, yeah, like every aspect of it is just like, you know, yeah, like you, you need to go on that journey, you know, uh, to, to get to that point where it's like, okay, now, now we see Penance, you know, and I, I think that would be really fun if they did it with another character besides Speedball, like rather than introducing Speedball, and I feel like they've done stuff like that before. So, you know, if there was some, yeah, some character who gets introduced at some point, and then that way it's more of a surprise too, we're not expecting it, you know, and right. all of a sudden they're responsible for this huge tragedy and it's just like, oh no, but we love you. And it's like, no, I'm going to be in this metal suit getting stabbed. This metal emo suit. So I never hurt anybody else but me unless I want to fucking burn Walking it down. Iron Maiden. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so great. Um, <laughs> we that we see we've already gone nowhere, dude. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. Back, yeah. Back to Moon Knight. Moon Knight still. Yeah. 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 Great. I'm yeah. So yeah, my, my main point is I'm, I'm excited to see, I'm excited to get to know this version of Moon Knight. And I mean, it'll probably be sort of my core interpretation of who Moon Knight is because of that, you know? Um, and I hope, yeah, I hope they, they kind of like, I like the idea of the multiple personalities and I, it, it's really intriguing to me the way they're doing it this way, where they're kind of dropping you in on he's already had these multiple it's personalities so smart them, you know like yeah. like that i think is great like i i don't know that i would have enjoyed it as much if it's like we're going to go on his journey of kind of developing the multiple personalities like it seems to do in the comics where it's like at first it's an alias that he's using and oh i'm gonna i'm gonna go be a cab driver like i think we talked about that before like it seems yeah. like he's definitely aware and consciously doing these things and then they right. kind of retrofitted it later um so wait, is, is Stevie one of his personalities from the comics so, or is that a new one? So Stephen Grant is, is, okay. um, different kind. <laughs> yeah. 
see like different of the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> different different um interpretations have him in different spots. He's the the oldest of the new personalities. So Mark is the primary, I think that's the right terminology. So one of his alters, I think that's also the appropriate t- terminology. Stephen Grant seems to be at least in Lemire's run it, he was his imaginary friend essentially so as he was growing up steven was there and that was kind of part of um that was why he was dishonorably discharged from was because he had just did and nobody yet hadn't reported it so that that kind of did that so steven is kind of his oldest personality it's one that he seems to have the most um interaction with and agree with the most uh, there's certain interpretations where steven grant is who Mark wishes he had been. He's kind of this affable billionaire. He, he's he's kind of uh, he's he's Bruce Wayne. I mean, there's a Batman comparison. My fellow Moon Knight fans will be on the Into the Night podcast. They bleep out the word Batman anytime they use it. It's like <laughs> it's like a bad word. It's it's, it's amazing. Um, but he he's he's an art dealer. That's the thing. So the the way his kind of money flew because he had millions of dollars was. Mark Spector as a mercenary got all of this treasure and all of these paintings and all of this kind of contraband stuff. And then Steven made his millions by selling it, curating art and then investing it. So, um, so Steven is kind of an original and he's kind of the, the most mild of them. He's kind of more flighty. He spends the most time with Marlene, uh, the love interest for much of the comics. So he, he's very fond, very familiar, very like, solid structure he's never been characterized quite like this this is very i i love that they've given moon knight the same origin as mike birbiglia in this show he has the <laughs> same like mike birbiglia is moon knight like i i'm so oh, happy. yeah that didn't occur to me that's awesome <laughs> that's what he taught he's talking about the new one that's moon knight <laughs> but it seems like this it might be the emergence of a new altar with this version of Steven. Um, he's very much more meek that we've never had him at really have a British accent. Not that you would convey that in the comics without saying like you're doing a British accent. Mm-hmm. It's kind of run. It's funny. My, the penetration of moon Knight into the zeitgeist is such that my dad sent me an article today. Like <laughs> he, he sent me an article that says uh, Oscar Isaac's, uh, uh, accent is the thing ruining moon Knight. <laughs> like it was just funny like the worst thing about it is or the the true villain that's what it was the true villain of the moon Knight series is oscar isaac's accent <laughs> but i also like when tyna and i were watching i it was like it's a little obviously it's oliver twisty but we were like at least he's trying for something like but it's all like there's also meta commentary going on in the moon Knight groups where it's like Oscar Isaac is in the reaction trailer. That's another thing, listeners, that we watched. I'm just spewing everything. I need to slow down. <laughs> um, we watched a reaction trailer where Oscar Isaac and Ethan Hawke watched the Moon Knight trailer. Um, and there's a point where he says, "My," uh, he's talking about he can't tell the difference between his waking life and dreams. And it's this kind of, please, sir, may I have some more accent? And Oscar Isaac does that joke. And it's like, this was your plan from the beginning. That's kind of the meme that's going to go been going on. And then it's like somebody had commented that it's essentially an American mercenary developing a different personality. And then in his mind, doing a bad British accent, like, cause that's all he would have 
the functionality to do is a bad British accent. Right. Well, again, I, so I, 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 love I thought that was I the point. It. Yeah, that it's not he's not playing an actual British person. He's playing an American person who thinks he's British. So he's yeah, he's doing an accent, not that he grew up with, but that he has an impression of. Yeah, it's yeah. excellent. I and I, I've started when I've been reading the comics. I've been reading the Stephen lines in the voice in my head, and it's amazing. It's it's the best thing ever. <laughs> so it's I like I said, there's that standard deviation from the comic book origin story, and I'm I'm so excited that they're picking it up in the middle, which makes me think we're gonna see the costume much quicker than like I didn't want it to be like. Uh, a, a last frame reveal i didn't want it to be uh uh the uh, smallville just like <laughs> like i wanted to see yeah. it in action and i wanted to see it pretty early so if we're having like these scenes kind of intercut with like rumors of a new vigilante on the streets of london hunting things that look like werewolves because mm-hmm. i think that's a jackal he's beating up something from the the, the followers of anubis or something like that yeah. it's unclear they've kept it but when people said werewolf i'm like yeah that would be really cool because jack russell being the the werewolf by night and we're gonna get that appearance c- coming up in uh, um the the marvel halloween special i guess next year is that's that's slated we're gonna get like a what? horror you didn't know that no dude there's a halloween marvel special coming up that's amazing yeah they already <laughs> cast the werewolf like it's oh it's gonna be awesome so um like there's, I, I get, I think we're getting like a Midnight Suns, like a, a, a supernatural, but like on Earth rather than being cosmic. I think right. we're gonna like there's gonna be multiverses kind of stuff. Then, yeah, 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 yeah. Do that kind of like, um, I guess Damnation run with Doctor Strange was recent, like that. Right. Be cool to get a Ghost Rider in, and we we've got Blade coming, and like, yeah. and it's we'll cool, like if Blade is, it, I, I think Blade is gonna be like. Um, recruiting either secret Avengers or a Midnight Suns type team because he he comes in like he's starting to make appearances and being being like referenced and stuff. So that's yeah, cool. That'd be cool. Yeah, because I, I I feel like back in the day, my my concern about Ghost Rider is like, oh man, like it's you know, have they figured out like the effects in that? And that was like the one good thing about the two Ghost Rider movies is like how fucking good everything looked. Like yeah. they can, they can make it look believable. Now just like do it well, do it right. Tied into the Marvel universe, you know, and please, for my sake, do Dan catch, not Johnny blaze. Like I'm done with him. Like, you know, <laughs> also you could do a fun thing. Like what happens in the comics now is like, if when they, if they, if they bring ghost rider, well, I guess ghost rider is already in the Marvel universe. because they had him in agents of shield. Yeah. So I guess That's they could Robbie. Bring- Robbie Reyes, Robbie Rodriguez, yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah, which, like, I never, I hadn't read those comics. Like, the ones I read were back, I think, in, like, the 90s. The, yeah, the, the Dan Ketch series, like, Volume 2. Um, but what's cool is, like, Johnny Blaze comes back and is, like, oh, like, basically hunting him. He's, like, I got rid of this demon, and now I'm going to come in. So it would be kind of cool to have Nicolas Cage come back as the Johnny Blaze Ghost Rider coming oh, yeah. after the Dan Ketch Ghost Rider. Like, I would like to see that. But it's, like, I don't, I don't know that I want to see... Uh, 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 Nicholas Cage as like the core Ghost Rider in the Marvel universe, you know. Um, that's just me. But, <laughs> I mean, I want to see everything Nicholas. I, I want him to do everything. Like, I, I don't want him to. <laughs> He's not putting himself in a box. I'm not going to put him in a box either. <laughs> <laughs> don't look at <in> that box. <laughs> Who put a dick in this box? <laughs> <laughs>
but yeah, it'd be cool to see like a lot of, um, yeah, like, like, yeah, like the, that kind of dark arts, like, you know, uh, that's, I, yeah, I feel like that's kind of like an untouched corner. Yeah. Midnight suns, like that whole thing. Um, actually it was really cool a while back. They did, I think it was in the venom comics. Like when, when flash Thompson, he had like lost his legs at war and they were experimenting with bonding him with the symbiote so that he could kind of walk and go out and do all this stuff. And they did this thing that kind of tied into this, yeah, like this kind of dark arts thing where, um, and it was really cool because what they did was they brought in, it took me a while to realize what they were doing, but they, it was something like it was, yeah, it was, so it was like that venom. Um, it was, I think they brought red Hulk in for some reason. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, I think X 23 and then, yeah, I think the, the, the Robbie, uh, Reyes Rodriguez Ghost Rider, I think. Yep. And then it clicked to me that those are basically the four characters, like like Wolverine, Spider Man, Ghost Rider, and Hulk became the Fantastic Four for a while, like when the Fantastic oh, Four okay. was gone. So they took these four dark, fucked up versions of those characters and made them the core of this like you know yeah. demonic thing. And it was just, it was so cool. Like it gave me like a bigger appreciation for it. So I was just kind of along for the ride. But I was like, wow, like you really planned this and pieced this together and kind of pulled all these random characters that have relation a, a relationship to these characters. So it'd be, I mean, not that they have to do that necessarily, but yeah, I feel like there are enough of those, those types of characters out there where you could kind of pull them in and have that separate pocket, you know, kind of like they did with the defenders, you know, like here are the the street level superheroes that can't, you know, face a cosmic threat, but we're going to put them together in this show, you know, to have like a, yeah, like a blade and a ghost rider and moon Knight and, you know, all those kind of characters put together. Um, that'd be really cool. Now I'm thinking of all these potential team ups, and I'm like, oh my god! If they bring back freaking Punisher, just just the amount of lead those dudes would fucking lay down, it would be <laughs> there would be an episode long minigun scene. Like it would be insane. Like just <laughs> Punisher's like mowing them down outside, and Moon Knight's inside, and they're running out of the building, scared of Moon Knight, willing to rush the bo- the the gunfire. Like I, and it's, I'm, I'm really interested how they're going to integrate. Cause like blade seems like a natural like transition. If we're doing Egyptian mythology, werewolves are going to happen. If there's all yeah. these kind of horror things happening, yeah, blade like it'll be fires. Like, yeah. Like, but I like, is Spider-Man going to meet up with Moon Knight at some point? Like what kind of reaction are they going to have to each other? Like I, I, I'm seeing like these integrations further along the line and i'm like interested yeah. to see what what place he has in the cinematic universe if he does and what like how that'll work it'll be it'll be really interesting i'm honestly we've got we got six episodes of this and like if that's all we get that's more than i ever expected in my whole life so like and i this is the right guy to, to head it up like oscar isaac he's so fucking excited man like this is the other thing is like he's so hyped to play it and like so it's i if we don't get anything else if like this for some reason doesn't go into the larger universe i'm i think i'm gonna be okay like we're gonna get the merch but they that's the other thing is they're pushing it so hard they didn't push wandavision Mm -hmm. like this they didn't push falcon winter soldier and hawkeye like this i don't remember any kind of marketing on this level right like 
Maybe there was a also, Super Bowl. Yeah, those were also Avengers that we had seen in the movies right. already. So it was kind of a tail end of the end game aspect where this is like, okay, this is the first time we're seeing this character. Like, you know, we really got to, this is, this is his Genesis, you know, we've really got to, you know, step this up. Um, Yeah. Which is, which is great. Yeah. It's nice that like, and and see, that's the thing too, is like, I, I feel like a lot of people have learned their lesson that like, when you do something that works, you can't go, Oh, let's do a bunch of other shit like that and just throw it out there and not care if it's good because people will want it. Like, I feel like, well, I don't want to say consumers in general, but at least like nerds and geeks have, you know, they have higher standards than that. Like you cannot fuck up their stuff because then they'll just, they'll fucking tear you down for it. So like, they're not just going to say like, yeah, let's do, we'll do a Moon Knight. We'll do a Blade. We'll do this. We'll do, you know, this, you know, we'll just, we'll just keep throwing it out there and it'll be garbage, but people eat it up. Like, no, like they're, they're, they're giving it the care. And me, I, I, I wonder if, I mean, not to say that if Disney hadn't bought Marvel, Marvel would have ruined their own characters. But I mean, like, you know, like, look at the way Disney films come out, you know, like the Disney Pixar stuff. Like, they don't just be like, whatever, it's another fucking animated thing. We're going to phone it in this year. Like, no, like right. they put care and craft into everything they release, you know. Um, and that's that's one of the things that made them Disney. And again, maybe Marvel would have done that, you know, now that they have their own studio. Um, I feel like a lot of the comic book movie problems we've had have been stuff like with different students like you know the fantastic four and the you know the 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 early spider-man stuff and the x-men stuff where it's just like you know there isn't one kind of clear unifying vision for all of it you know but we've clearly seen that that's what disney and marvel are doing so uh, you know i don't i don't have any reason to think that they're doing going to do anything that's just a throwaway thing like whatever it'll make money people are stupid they'll watch it you know it's like no like they know that if it's if it's not perfect like we're gonna fucking tear them down and it's like you know and you're you know we're, we're gonna fuck with your money you know and, and disney doesn't like their money fucked with you know like so they're gonna they're gonna do the right thing you know i'm also thinking like you don't get oscar isaac who was like right king of trades in dune and poe dameron like th- this is he's already got is... disney money he doesn't need disney money he's gonna do it because it's done right not just right. for the paycheck yeah and you i mean you could see in the training videos dude like that that was such a godsend those early because that's the thing like we had this announcement and it was supposed to be 2020 and 2020 happened right. so like it put production back and like we got little snippets and it's like so far down the docket they were they got had to get um black widow marketed they had to figure out that but it was a whole like adjustment and everything got moved back and moon knight was like i mean even she hulk and miss marvel are and those are on the same slate like they they were kicked back and i didn't think moon knight was going to be the first one out of the gate honestly and the the way the marketing looks it looks very much like when they would hey here comes the next new avenger like they were pushing it it's like hey this is the next this is phase two. We're introducing these, like, it seems that kind of push. Yeah. So it, it's, it's really crazy. Well, I almost wonder too, if like they, I mean, not that they're at a loss for, for money, but maybe like in terms of seeing that the way people can, you know, consume content is changing. So it's like maybe instead of doing a bunch of movies with solo Avengers, we that's what we use this the this tv series for right you know so we're going to introduce these characters through disney plus on you know a, a, with a series 
and then maybe save the films for, okay, when we finally have an Avengers film or a Midnight Suns film or, you know, something like that, that's when you go to the movies to see all these characters come together, maybe. They still do have movies slated, obviously, but like, you know. And like you said about like, kind of, they're not going to put away, put up a throwaway one. Like when you're getting Oscar Isaac, he's not saying yes to six episodes, right? Right. There's no way he's like, this is, this is, the other playground. I was in Star Wars. Yeah. I, I want to be in Mar- like put me in the movies too. Like I don't I don't see any actor going into that like I I only want to be on Disney Plus. Like that I right. I'm sure there's shit that slated we have no idea yet and it's gonna blow our brains. Like I yeah. I'm yeah, it's it's all coming well, up. Well, yeah, and and that's the thing, like looking back on the original uh, you know infinity saga right like they they planted the seeds for that in captain america first avenger right that's where we had the tesseract that was our first infinity stone right so they had a plan not not necessarily every little point along the way but from that early on when we're just oh cool we're getting a captain america movie he was the torch but okay he can be captain america too way back in that the infancy of what the marvel universe was they had what was did it end up being three or four phases, right? Was it four, four. right? I think, yeah. Yep. So basically, yeah, each phase ending roughly with a, a Avengers film. So they had four phases planned already. So looking at what we have now, like I've got to think they've got they're they're planning four phases ahead again, you know. So it's like they've I think they've got things in mind yeah like yeah like you said like i, I you know oscar isaac isn't going to do this for six episodes disney's not going to do this for just six episodes and then we'll never see him again you know like there's there's a whole new like second generation of a marvel cinematic universe i think that they're weaving you know and and i think what's cool about it too is they've got like many different uh well not just villains but different like you know the fact that like the the multiverse is weaving itself in 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 many different corners of this like you know because we've we've had it in spider-man we had it in loki you know we're getting it in doctor strange you know so it's like you know the it, it's not just sort of growing in width it's growing in width you know also in many dimensions you know so like you know, I almost wonder, like, looking looking at some of the stuff we've got in the comics that have happened, like, I almost wonder if they're planning on doing sort of a, I forget what it was called, but, like, in DC when they did their kind of crisis on Infinite Earths, you know, where it's like, we're going to create this huge multiverse and, you know, bring in these characters from other different universes, and then are we going to have this big climactic event that, like, leaves some of those, you know, like, you know, like... Obviously, by now, yes, I've seen that Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield were in Spider-Man No Way Home. Um, But the impression I got is that they're not sort of permanent additions to the Marvel Universe. But, like, maybe they will be in the future or something like that. Or maybe, you know, maybe there will be this change of status quo. Or maybe that's how they bring Miles Morales in, you know, and then he becomes the new Spider-Man. But he's from another universe or something like that. So, I mean, yeah, so I've got to think that everything they're doing is intentional. You know, like, we've seen that... We didn't know that in the beginning, but we very, very quickly realized that they had been doing that all along, you know. Um, You know, and that's, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I went back and wanted to read as early of Bendis' stuff as possible, because knowing how he likes to plant seeds and had been planting seeds, I feel like that's kind of, I mean, that's, that's one of my favorite things about the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe is that it's not 
okay, we're going to make this movie and we're going to make this movie and it doesn't have anything to do with that movie and it disregards everything this said and we're going to have this these two characters in this other movie, but they're not going to recognize each other in this other movie. You know, it's like, you know, and then we're going to constantly change actors and not really give a shit or have two versions of the same character with different actors playing them simultaneously and never really address it, you know, like, um, you know, like like some other comic book movie studios might do. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... Um, so yeah, so I mean, I, I, I have nothing but like faith in what Marvel and Disney are doing and that it's going to be, be great. And it's, you know, I mean, I guess, I guess part of me is like, I'm, I'm almost, if anything, I'm a little worried for you because you're so steeped in the Moon Knight stuff, you know, are there things that they're going to do that might fuck up your favorite character for you where you've kind of had this idea, you know, you know, it's funny you're bringing up. I've had so many Spider-Man movies now. Like that was, that was the thing is like, when I got my first Spider-Man movie, I was like, this is fucking great. And it's like, so I've got to have the spectrum. So it's like, to me, Spider-Man doesn't have to be perfect anymore because I can kind of just imagine my favorite parts from all the movies and kind of cobble together, you know, an amalgamation of my cinematic Spider-Man, you know, whereas like, if any of of my Moon Knight fan friends listen to this they're gonna be like really surprised that you're touting bendis as this like god because like moon knight fans don't like bendis because he, oh, he did, did that run like, where he was like he had spider-man and wolverine and like cap in his mind right too that was yeah. like part of it. yeah i which i haven't look, read yet i should just fucking read it but like but the thing is it dies it goes six uh maybe 17 episodes it's not that long it's not even that long it's like a single trade paperback worth of issues. Okay. And it was just like, no, we're not doing this. Like it, people were not about it, but it's cool. Like it, it's, it's Alex Maleev and Brian Michael Bendis, the yeah. daredevil team, the legendary daredevil team. Yeah, like the, the artwork, team. Yeah. the artwork is killer. I think echo makes an appearance in it. And I think he like, it's, it's interesting. I always like, I always do snicked and flip like how cool would it be to be able to like web sling and have extendable claws and then the shield like i understand why somebody would do that like let's make moon knight all but it really made it feel like he didn't want to write moon knight he was just like well this is a guy with three empty spaces in his head let's fill him with people who actually sell comics like it seemed like a very like big business (laughs) bendis kind of decision yeah which is also um, weird too, because I think he was the one who brought Moon Knight into the Ultimate Universe. Because I think it was in you know his run on Ultimate yeah, Spider-Man. Yeah. So it's just like, and I think I think he did kind of play around like that a little bit. Like I don't think Spider-Man was a part of his multiple personalities, but like, yeah, I, me- I do remember being like, oh, like this is what this Moon Knight is. Okay, so it's like, yeah, it's, if you want to do a Moon Knight that's a deviation, like do it there. Like, why would you kind of jump into the marvel universe proper and be like we're going to do this weird version of moon knight um but it's interesting there's a lot of history between spidey and moon knight the ultimate run there's a uh kind of in the eight the i guess the 80s run the 84 run um and then doesn't talk at all in the the ultimate version yeah he's very like it's very quiet it's a different character like i don't yeah i don't think he he speaks at all like i think that's it's part a, of it like yeah it's a sick costume design though that's one of my favorite alter like like i really liked that character design i never read it cuz it's kind of spotty and it's kind of in the middle of this other bigger arc i yeah. feel like spidey's taking on like the hand and there's daredevil is in it and electra is in it too i can't remember all of those but um yeah there's 
and and in, when they did when they did the Gamora gets the gauntlet event where she uh, instead of instead of uh, cutting the universe in half with the snap she folded it in half oh, and God. so there's an amalgam Spider Man Moon Knight called Arachnite. Oh, nice. Um, who who has kind of like a cult following? Like the uh, Walgreens did an exclusive Funko. I almost got, I should have got one. Now now I'm really kicking myself because all this. <laughs> I have a lot of Moon Knight stuff, but all of it is like <laughs> skyrocketing right now. But it's it's just cool to see those characters associated with each other. Um, but yeah, but in terms of like disappointment, Bendis's run is like the worst thing to happen to him. Like <laughs> this is a character who like people. There's a, there's people who throw him in other books and team ups or like auxiliary that don't really get him and just kind of put him in as like he's crazy like don't he, like he's very he can be used really dismissively that would be my biggest fear is that like they underplay his dissociative identity disorder and that they make it a joke which I don't think they're doing the, the tone of this seems to be taking taking it very seriously like talking about it in real terms and like I really like the the device of the sleep disorder. And mm-hmm. sleepwalking being a manifestation of him kind of switching between altars. I, yeah. I, it's, a it's like really... a nice little fight club nod that they have in there. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it feels more tonally similar to the dark stuff that they did with the Netflix Marvel stuff. Mm. It, it's similar in tone to Moon Knight or to Daredevil, but it's not. And I think that's the other thing is like, I, how do you make this guy different than Daredevil? Because they're both rageful, both super trained, like both uh, differently abled, blind and dissociative identity. So like there's there's all these parallels and a man that would be a great if they did a punch and punch a bit and then their mates between Daredevil and Moon Knight. I think you, me, and Zeke might just die of happiness just like the, to see that team up. Like, I mean, that is one of the trail the the spoilers that I saw from No Way Home is that you know, Matt Murdock played by Charlie Cox is in it. So it's like, you know, if, you know, cause that's the thing too, like with, with, I feel like with agents of shield, they tried to keep that off to the side. Yeah. Like, yes, we're saying this is part of the universe and we might bring some of the characters from the movies into agents of shield. Right. Like lady Sif showed up at one point, but it, it's never going to go the other way, you know? Right. Um, you know, similar like with yeah, with all the Netflix stuff, it's like we're going to reference oh, the Battle of New York, and they're cleaning it up, and you know that's going to kind of set the stage to kind of show that this takes place. But but yeah, like we we hadn't seen those you know those char- those characters weren't in Endgame, you know, right? Um, so so the fact now that like okay, if we're saying that you know yes, Charlie Cox's Daredevil is in you know a movie with Spider Man, and then we know that like all of the Disney plus stuff like that has more of an active role of kind of time, you know, like with Wanda. I mean, I guess you could say the same thing. We haven't seen anyone go from Disney plus TV shows into the films yet. Um, but I well, feel I like mean, it's, it's also under the same umbrella. Whereas, you know, like agents of shield and Netflix wasn't like those, you know, that was, right. what, it was an agents of shield, like also Fox or something like that. Like, I think there was yeah. a TV studio that owned that right. and like Netflix. So, so yeah, now that we're seeing that, like, okay, like, you know, if this, then this, okay, like this can actually happen, you know? And I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I didn't think of this till now. I don't want to make it sound like oh, I made a prediction, but I wouldn't be surprised if Daredevil shows up in Moon Knight at some point, you know? Like, even if that's oh. the sort of, 
throwaway end of the scene kind of thing, end of the series where it's like, you know, maybe that's maybe that's why Mark is in London. It's like he can't come home because of like war crimes or something like or he's like a, a person of interest because he was part of like that mercenary group. So like, he's like an international criminal and maybe Murdoch thinks like we need a little bit of crazy back on this side or something. I don't know. That would be cool. I've also also, represent him in court when he's trying to like get cleared of whatever, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Like he does a lot of stuff as Mr. Knight, kind of like just the the white suit, like three piece suit persona. He'll like show up to public appearances like that. So it'd be funny. It'd be cool to see him come up like Mr. Knight in court being interviewed by Daredevil or yeah. uh, questioned. That would be cool. See, now I'm thinking, because we've got Secret Wars coming up and we've got Scrolls. So I'm thinking like it would be really cool if like a Midnight Suns or if they're the, for some reason it would be cool to do like a West Coast Avengers, but with like more dark, hmm. I don't know, like a, like a, almost like a dark Justice League, Justice League dark type style yeah. team. And then they would be like the ground level. So they fought all these like like uh um supernatural like werewolves and vampires and stuff. And then when the scrolls start popping up, it was like, well, we could fight these guys on the ground, and then the Avengers can fight in the air, and then eventually they could have a conflict. And I mean they've teased the Thunderbolts. We've got Baron Zembo as one of the founding right. members, and then Hammer has been around. Like, if you got a Thunderbolts team, they have a big history with Moon Knight. Like, they Norman Osborn hates Moon Knight, like, in, in the comics. So it's like, in the comics now, actually, they're reforming the Thunderbolts, and the first person on their list is Moon Knight. So, like, he's kind of getting this kind of sprawling. He's getting a second series, too. Did you see that, Tim? No, no. They're doing, like, a feature. For, they're doing, like, a four-issue mini and it's just going to be like alternate, like one-off stories about Moon Knight. And they've got the, like John Hickman's going to be on a couple of the stories oh, nice. and they've got Jorge Forns, who I love from the uh, Tom King's Batman run. Great artistic style. Like I've been praying for that guy to be on that, on a Moon Knight comic for ages. So it's like all, all the stars are aligning. Moon Knight will have two comics bearing his name as the title running at the same time for the first time ever. Like it, it's just, I, it's so cool, man. And like that second series starts running in April. So after the show has aired, like it's, it's going to be in, more Moon Knight comics. And they're gonna be like, here you go. <laughs> and we might get two ongoing series of Moon Knight comics, which, which would be insane. Like it's like it's Wolverine Spider-Man level. <laughs> that's what I would say. Like it's quaint to think of like spectacular, amazing and, Peter Parker or Spider-Man, those are three running and that's without Miles Morales or Ben Riley or like just mm-hmm. it, the, the amount of proliferation of Spidey is crazy. If we could get two, that's crazy. Like it, yeah. th- th- if that's the final result of all this is we just get two ongoing Moon Knight series. I am, I am pleased. I, I, I had posted this on Facebook and I wanted to say it on the podcast and this could be like the last thing that we say is just like, the way it felt waiting for that trailer was like, I knew what Star Wars was and no one else on the planet knew what Star Wars was. <laughs> and they were about to find out and it was about to be shared and they were going to get the excitement and to get to know, they're, they're going to know who he is, that they're going to know who Moon Knight is. And that is like so cool. I've never felt like that before. It's just like, it's just like this secret little niche thing like I said, I found in a used bookstore in a mountain town 
just randomly. We went in there on a, a like just the 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 randomness of me finding these comics and falling in love with this character it, it, and just nobody like there was a small really kind of fervent audience for it but for the most part nobody thought it was cool like just kind of in in the periphery so it's so cool that like i've seen so many comments and youtube videos it's like i don't know anything about this but oh man am i excited to see what they do like it's just like and that was kind of in the fandom people were kind of concerned that like oh if he's popular it'll ruin no never it would never just ruin think of it. That like, hipster idea. You it know, just doesn't like, make any yeah. sense. Like, I just share the joy, man. Yeah. Like, why are we holding back the joy bombs? Like, just throw them out. Yeah. It, like, yeah, it, it's it's so cool to pe- see people discovering them and be skeptical and intrigued and like, oh my god, that looks dark. What is, what is going on? Wait, Mark? Who's Mark? He's supposed to be yeah. Steven. Like, I, I almost wish they hadn't dropped that, you know, because it's like yeah. for people who don't know about the multiple personalities to go along and be like, all right, here's this guy, Steven. I guess he's going to be Moon Knight. Like, wait, what? What? You know, like, you know, I yeah. mean, I, I knew about it from you, but if I hadn't known, you know, or although then again, when I was introduced to him, I knew that his name was Mark Spector. That was like the only, you know, again, back when I first knew about it, that it was just it. Like, that's who he was, you yeah. know, but yeah yeah people are going to get to go on that that ride for the first time and be like oh man like this is the whole other layer to his to this character it's been so cool my mom keeps texting me as like things are coming out she's like you did this it's so exciting he's your favorite you're his number one fan how cool is it your dreams are coming true it's like it's just like the most wholesome like warm feeling that she like my mom who's my biggest fan is happy that I'm Moon Knight's biggest fan and like it's 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 all happening. She's yeah. just it's so cool. Like it it's and she was talking about like you you've been excited about this guy from the second you found out about him. And that's true. Like it is not dipped. And the more and that's the thing. I discovered him from the first run, which mm-hmm. is the the uh 1980s run, really early 80s. It's like really schlocky, kind of is paced the way like an old serial caught like would be the artwork gets really incredible because Sinkevich is just this incredible but like every different iteration I was reading about and like it just I I love everything about this guy and it's so cool that now the world is going to get to know him too but see I'm, I'm also jealous of you in a way too that you your favorite character and and you know not I, this is going to sound a little hipster but the fact that it's this niche thing like I feel like it's so much easier for you to have all of it you know yeah have like the wealth of like like i don't know all of the spider-man stories i definitely don't have all of the spider-man comic books you know and i never will you know so to have this character that it's just like yeah like everything that's had moon knight in its name like i own it and i know it and i've read it and it's it's a part of me you know like like so i I think the closest thing i was trying to do with that was with the ultimate con like when that whole ultimate universe started like i collected everything with the ultimate name on it because it's like i want to know this entire universe inside and out but even that like i've kind of fallen off and i haven't caught up and whatever but like yeah to be like everything moon knight is is you know in in my possession and in my brain like that's so cool like i mean probably the closest thing to me was is is probably dark hawk because like that was the yeah, that was definitely something that was like, you know, there's Spider-Man and then it's like, wait, what the fuck is this new thing? You know, like, so I think that's the closest thing I have to kind of like your relationship with Moon Knight, where it's like, yeah, it's on the fringes. There isn't a lot of stuff. 
you know, but there's so much potential and like wanting to see him on the screen and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, like, so yeah, so I'm kind of jealous that like my favorite back in the day, it was great when the movie started coming out and, you know, kind of like you're saying like more merch, you know, it's like, I can have more cool Spider-Man stuff. Like that was great, but, but yeah, it's definitely like your favorite being one of the more popular ones. It, it, it got played out kind of quickly, you know, and it's right. like, oh, well, there's this Spider-Man, this Spider-Man, this Spider-Man. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm glad that happened because now with like, uh, No Way Home bringing it all together is like perfect. I'm glad that, you know, we kind of had this sort of like, let's do another Spider-Man, another Spider-Man, another Spider-Man, you know, but, um, but yeah, like there's something to be said for like, this is sort of my, you know, it's kind of like, you know, like my favorite band being Rush, like they have like what, like 40 albums, you know, it's right. like to kind of know it as opposed to like, oh, this band is my favorite band. They have like four albums, you know, and it's like, I've digested every single note. It's like, you know, again, like I'm never going to have the the knowledge of Rush's entire catalog as someone whose like favorite band has only four albums and they've listened to those band each album 20 times and 20 times in a row and just play, you know, it's like, you know, there are some rush albums I've listened to 20 plus times, but you know, I'm never going to have the, the, the grasp of their whole catalog as a whole, because there's just so much of it, you know? Right. It is, it is really cool to feel like you're on the ground floor of something. It's crazy. Like I, I got into them at like the perfect time. Because, like, there was some scarcity in terms, like, I mean, his first appearance, Werewolf by Night 32, is a really rare comic. Like, that was, it's the most expensive one. But, like, still, you're not paying a Silver Surfer 4 or, like, those early. Amazing Fantasy 15. <laughs> right, right. That's the Crosshairs one, right? Like, that's the, or which one's that? Is that Thor's first appearance? No, it's Spider-Man's first appearance. That's Spidey's. Okay, yeah. that's good. Sorry. Yeah, so before Amazing Spider-Man one, right, so right, yeah. right, right, right. Like it, it's it was it was niche and like, but you could find stuff. Like I have his his early defend, like his first appearance in like a team book was the Defenders. I have that stuff. I have these like special editions that reprinted stuff that ran in Hulk magazine back in the day. Those are super rare. I've never seen one of those anywhere, um, just because people tore them apart. I guess because they were bigger. I guess. Um, but like it, it, it was, it was really cool when I, and it's only been maybe five, has it been more than five years, six years? It seems longer. I feel like I've been obsessed with him for my whole life, but it, it's really been just more in the last 10 years, we'll say like, but like, it, it's, it's cool to feel on the ground floor and like, I'm still getting like bits and pieces of the collection. I stopped th- getting every issue and I, I got rid of a bunch of the more, most recent run because I had them in like digitally and then or not this most recent, but the, the one previous. And then I had some early um, West coast adventures appearances that weren't re- like, I kept the ones I liked the covers of, but I just, at a certain point you have to let go. Cause even like it continues to grow. That's the thing. Like moon Knight was great in theory because for a long time, he wasn't putting anything out. He had one string of issues. that was 60 long. And that was from like 90, four till I don't know, 97 or something, however long that 60 issues takes to come out. But mm-hmm. then it was, there was nothing until 2003 or like there would, you'd get four issues here, one issue here where like a fringe appearance and stuff. So it was like, it was really easy to track down because it was so few and he was kind of a throwaway. Nobody really cared. So you could really kind of put it together a collection. Like I was, I, I have a tendency of doing that, of finding things that are like, more niche and not like like i like batman 
I like collecting Batman stuff, but I'm never going to get right. Detective Comics, what is it, 30, 27. Like, I'm never going to have that one because it's just so – his first appearance is the most, like, sought after except for Superman, right? Like, Action Comics yeah. 1 is probably the most valuable comic ever. Like, so, like, I like that stuff, but it was so cool to, like – that's what got me back into comics, Moon Knight was. So, like, mm-hmm. it was also rediscovering this hobby through – this niche character and it kind of really made comic books accessible. That's, I love that stuff. And it's the, the weird ones have to work harder. Like that, that's the other thing is like, it's so, it was so fascinating. Like with, within the first couple panels reading, it's like, there's three personas going on. It's crazy. Like it's, it's so interesting and so strange. And like, yeah, it's, I, I, I do acknowledge I am on the ground floor and I am loving every minute of it. Like it, dude, they, they talking about like merch and toys and I am going to be so broke. I need to get a new job just to offset the amount of merch I'm going to be lusting (laughs) after. It's, I, as a Moon Knight fan, it is so, so cool. It's so cool to see people discover it and it, it's really happening. I can't believe it's really happening. Let's talk about school. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to do a quick recap. So last semester had the gas leak, which sort of <laughs> pushed me behind in all my classes. So I ended up towards the end. I was kind of like, you know, Hey, you know, is there any way I can, you know, like I, at one point I was like panicking. So I was like, I might just fail everything. I was like, you know, cause everything was so late. Cause I was pushed back like two weeks And I was like, do I even still have a chance of passing? If so, like, what do I need to do? Like, how can I do this? Like, I just, I can't catch up because there's like so much work to do. And it's like, I can't just do two weeks amount of work in one week. I'm barely getting through one week's amount of work in one week. So I ended up finishing one class on time. Uh, I planned on taking an incomplete in one of my classes. And the third class I was hoping to finish on time. But at the very end, I was like, no, I need to take an incomplete in this class too. But unfortunately, that class was a prerequisite for the classes I was taking. So I was like, okay, I need to take the incomplete, but I need to finish it ASAP so I can, you know, and my professor had told me like, oh, yeah, as long as you get it in before the semester starts and only, you know, I'll submit the grade. It only takes like a day for it to show up in the registrar and it'll be good to go. So that's what ended up happening. Finished one class, the other class, and the one I had to take the incomplete in that I wasn't planning on was my, that was where I was doing my final project was doing a mini mock-up of Imperial March. Yeah. Which, you know, again, like it was, I think it was like the, the day before the end of the semester and I had spent something like five hours working on it and I was probably, I don't know, an eighth of the way through it. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was like, and I still had to finish my other project for my other class. And I was like, you know, just like, there is no way there are not enough hours between, you know, this was on Saturday. There are not enough hours between now and Sunday at midnight East coast time for me to finish this. So, um, so I kind of told him, I was like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just gonna have to take that complete. So I was like, okay, I finished my other class, got that one done on time. Nope. Sweat moving on. Um, and I was like, yeah, I'll totally finish, you know, the, my final project before Christmas. Like, nope, that didn't happen. I got my, you know, my, my booster and my, um, flu shot, you know, the Tuesday, I think before Christmas. And that knocked yep. me out for like a day and a half. Uh, we did a podcast, I, you know, and then it was almost Christmas and it was Christmas and it was after Christmas. It was like, oh, I should get back and do my fucking work now. So finally finished. Also, that. you died. So that, yeah, that's, died. That's, that's also, an, <laughs> that's also <laughs> difficult. Yeah. So 
so yeah so uh so when this semester was starting i i wanted to finish my other class which i didn't get to so i'm still like four weeks behind on that other class that i have the incomplete in um and but i was also like well i could either work on that or i could set up all my new shit because you know all throughout last semester i bought a new computer i bought new headphones like a new interface like all this stuff that i just never had the hours to say okay i'm not going to do any work today i'm just going to set up my new desk so um i didn't do any of that until i think it was like maybe friday before the new semester started i was like i need to get my new computer up and running so I knew now have that. I have my new computer. I have my new headphones. Um, I Dude, completely... let me see the headphones. I can't believe you're not using them now. We're not good enough for you. I mean, they're still headphones. They're still. Oh, I'd still you. rather just have nothing. Oh, they're so nice. Yeah. So God, Sennheiser. Um, yeah. Oh, and here's the thing too: is I was I decided I was like I need a new desk now. So that's the fucked up part. Is at some point I've got to like get a new desk. And there isn't room in here for both. So I'm going to have to find somewhere to put all the shit that I just took out and set up, put that somewhere so I can take this desk apart to even get it out the door of the office and then bring in the new desk, set it up in here and then put everything up. But the one I'm buying, part of the issue is like on my desk, I can't fit my, my music keyboard and my computer keyboard because it just like the, the width or the depth of the desk. So the new one I'm getting is going to have like a separate shelf on top. And that's where my computer and like my new studio monitors are going to go. That's another thing I have to buy more gear. And then it's got one of the little rollout trays to put my computer keyboard and trackpad on so that the desk will be taken up by my music keyboard. So I can actually have like, okay, there's my monitor. There are my, my speakers. Here's my keyboard. Here's like everything just within reach. So I need something like that. Cause I've got like with my setup, since I'm like, doing remote and then in the office like i have both my work laptop and my personal laptop sitting side by side on it then my keyboard but like the audio interface has to sit on a thing to the side my mm. key my midi keyboard which i mean it's not huge but like i can't stack both it and my keyboard and that's the right. thing when you're like inputting into a daw you need the regular keyboard just as much as you need the midi right. in terms of like shortcuts and saving and adjusting yeah. levels and stuff so like I would read that kind of tandem setup. If you set it up like an organ, that would be the best. It's like mm-hmm. you could just go up and down. That That's really cool. Yeah. That, that's I'll send exciting. you the Amazon link to the desk I'm going to buy. In case yeah. I, yeah, I want that too. <laughs> but So anyways, that's the prelude to this semester. Um, oh, also a fun fact too is that I was so used to using a laptop that I didn't get a mouse. I got a trackpad. Oh, which like I, I realized only a few years ago, this is something you could do. Cause I just I, like, I'm like, yeah, like using a mouse is fucking stupid. Like, so, you know, and you kind of get, you, Oh, it's like, Oh, it is, here's this touch surface. I'm just using my fingers. So it's like, yeah, they Apple actually makes it where you could just use that even though it's, huh. you know, it's not a laptop. So it cost a little extra, but it was definitely worth it to just kind of make that easier transition to not have to figure out how to use a mouse again, you know? And I mean, I, you know, I've, I've used mice like when I was at work at, you know, mail services and stuff like that, but never for like the music stuff that I've been doing, you know, all my music stuff. And, you know, aside from just simple, like navigating a website, like everything is being done with like, with my fingers touching things. And, you know, mm. um, so yeah, I like, I like, it's way more tactile. It's way more just like organic, you know, um, so that's super Dude, I could not, I couldn't edit without a mouse. Like it's, I, it's, it's like a, a baby blanket for me. Yeah. It's like, 
point yeah. <laughs> point with this finger. <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. Yeah, if you've been using a mouse for so long, yeah. But like, that's the thing is, I've I've had laptops since 2010. Gotcha. See, I always bought. I would always buy an external mouse. I like the trackpad, especially with edit like spreadsheet stuff, just mm. because of how I have to move and stuff. And I have a cheater one that's got. Oh, or just sit still. Oh, yeah. And it's outstanding. Like it just, I can navigate back through tabs and undo things. Like I don't know. I it's so crazy. I would never have. I I don't know that I know anybody else who's opted for the trackpad instead of a yeah. mouse. That's really that's cool. Yeah. Well, actually, weird Chris, man i love yeah. you <laughs> well krista got a new one too and she's her hers has the mouse but i guess the new apple mice like the top is like touch sensitive so instead of having like a wheel to scroll like you can move your finger on it and it does sense that that's uh, rad and you can also right click i remember for years that was a thing with like apple mice that didn't have right click like right. it had one button and then you had to do like command or control click so it's like what yeah. the fuck? And, that, and I think that was one of the things that I liked about the trackpad first is that you could program it to be like, you know, if I tap it with two fingers, that's right click right. as opposed to one. So like you could set it up that way and have all these different motions that you can do on it. Um, you know, kind of like the touch surface of like a tablet or something like that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so that was the prelude to this semester. So I went into the semester being like, okay, I've really got to make sure I fucking do this right. I don't want to have another semester like last semester. You know, I've got to stay on top of it so that if some fucking shit goes down for two weeks and I can't get my work done, I won't be so far behind. Um, and also uh, the first Saturday of the of my first week of classes was Krista's birthday. So it's like, okay, we're going to do stuff for her birthday. Like I have to stay on top of it. So so just to put it out there, I was actually able to finish all my work by Saturday night, which was amazing. So it was like, wow, I have this whole extra day as opposed to finishing it, you know, Sunday night, technically Monday morning, six in the morning kind of thing. Yeah. So it was nice to be like, okay, I can handle this. Um, so yeah, we're in week two now. Um, so my three classes are, um, and I'll, I'll talk about them in the order that I do them because I do the most difficult one first so I can kind of, you know, eat my vegetables. So, <laughs> so um, one of the classes I'm doing is mixing the film score. Oh, uh, my other one is compositional, de- uh, compositional voice development in film scoring and then oh. composing the orchestral film score. Wow. So, so mixing this the is film heavy score, duty. Yeah. This is, these are like the big, this is the meat, man. Yeah, Dude, like, like they didn't fuck. waste any time. They said, oh, here are three classes that are going to kick your ass. And then here are three more classes that are going to kick your ass further. Now, one of the things that the, one of the distinctions I want to make, not that I think these classes are going to be easier, but the compositional voice development and or composing the, the orchestral film score, like I'm actually like they actually have elements of composition in them. Which, um, I mean, the the one class I had last semester where I had to just, oh, yeah, by the way, compose a film score. Like, that was also, I feel like, this this side project because, like, there wasn't a lot of focus. Um, There were were a few lessons that did deal with specific aspects of composing. But a lot of it was go compose the music to this film on your own, and we're going to teach you about, you know, like, the, the business of film scoring and all that, you know, like, you know, it's the professional film scoring skills, you know, mm-hmm. so everything that's not music-related. Um, and then, you know, one was analysis, and then one was all the, the MIDI stuff. So it, it didn't deal a lot with, like, oh, write something really cool in this style. Now write something cool in this other style. 
So two of my classes this semester are actually doing that, which is, which I'm super happy about. I'm super happy that I get to do a little bit more of the creative stuff. Um, but I, I gotta admit, I'm, I'm, I'm fucking terrified of the mixing the film scoring class because also I, I, I have to do it in pro tools, which is, you know, what's used for sort of like, you know, mixing all the audio into a film. So I've got to like learn a whole new DAW. I mean, not, I don't think I have to learn it to the degree that I have to know logic. I think it's more about, I think a lot of what we're going to be doing is maybe creating like stems that we put in pro tools. It's like, okay, you have a woodwind stem and a brass stem and a percussion stem and a string stem. How do you mix those elements together in pro tools? And what are the, what are the, the, the tools in pro tools that allow you to do these different things? Um, you know, cause I think, I think that's the point is they're teaching you the skill of, what the people, the people who are working in pro tools, you know, they're not the composers if they're, if they're doing the sound mixing to the picture. So they're right. just taking the stuff you've delivered and they're mixing it and doing stuff with it, you know? And I think a lot of it also, you know, we've been talking about listening to other music and how it's mixed and stuff like that. So I think, um, yeah, it is, it is focusing on those later stages of mixing. I mean, having said that, I think it is also going to talk about like how we mix our music also, you know, um, but at least the pro tools, tools element, like, I don't think we're going to be required to like compose a piece within pro tools as a DAW and mix every aspect of it. Um, hopefully. (laughs) Well, I mean, if you do, man, even if you do, you're going to be so fucking efficient at all these processes. Like it's going to be a bitch, but you're going to be able to be like, I'm going to step in front of any of these and I I can do my thing like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause I've already mentioned that I am going to learn Cubase now because of the whole like yep. Cubase has the folders within folders that logic doesn't have. So yep. that's uh yeah. So, which I've, I've held off on that. Cause it's like, okay, that's something to know. Like, I feel like it was really good for, I got to know logic really well because I was using it for that class. But now that I'm jumping into later classes, I don't want to be like, Oh, I'm going to start a whole new DAW within this class right. and have to start from scratch again. So I think like Cubase is going to be something I'm learning kind of on the side or even like yeah. after the program's done. Same thing with Dorico, which is another notation software, uh, um, which a lot of people have been moving towards now. So, and what's really cool is that uh, uh, Dorico and Cubase are from the same company. And I've, I've already heard glimpses of like integration between the two, uh-huh. like certain things you can do in Cubase will make it so that if you, Cause that's the thing is like in logic, you can technically produce notation or you can take a MIDI file and import that into Sibelius, but there are a lot of things that don't translate. Whereas I think there are elements of stuff within Cubase that because they're like, Hey, you know, our parent company also owns a notation software. So Dorico, I think knows how to read things coming out of Cubase better than Sibelius will read stuff coming out of logic. Gotcha. So that's another reason for me to kind of learn those two and you know because they're because they're so much more integrated although uh pro tools is made by the same company as sibelius so there's integration with that aspect of it gotcha. so i don't know that i would ever just dump sibelius completely um That's you know, especially to ask the- like at this point are you thinking what do you think will be your default going for I, obviously you want to learn cubase but like as you're going forward are you finding that like you like pro tools better or um, but, I mean, that's the thing is like, yeah, like I haven't, I, I've seen Cubase in action and I've seen things that I'm like, Ooh, I like that. Like one of the things, for example, that I, that I also like is 
So when you're working in like the piano role and, you know, you have all the bars that represent the, the notes and the durations. So all of that in logic, and maybe there's a way to turn this on that I don't know about, but if you want to know what those notes are, you've got to like look at the piano roll on the left and go, oh, that's a C, that's a D. So in Cubase, when I've seen it, it actually has the name of the notes written on all those bars. So you're not trying to learn how to read some infinitely long, not infinite, but long ass staff, like, or, you know, eight octave staff that's just lines that are all equal and be like, what fucking note is that out in space? It tells you like, this is a C, this is an F sharp, like on the note itself, Um, which that's one of the things that makes it really, you know, I haven't composed enough in logic to get really comfortable where when I'm looking at something, I can read it the way I can read something on, on a staff, you know, with notation, you know. Whereas with, with Cubase, that would make it a lot easier to read. Oh, that's what this melody is. You know, like I can look at a bunch of notes on the piano roll and be like, I don't know what fucking part of the music this is, right. you know, because it's all just a bunch of bars and it's not until I like compare it to the piano on the side and go, Oh, that's what this is. Um, so anyway, like I've seen a lot of Cubase in action, a lot of things that make me go, Ooh, I want to start using this because this would be really cool. I haven't seen a lot of pro tools in action. I've seen gotcha. a few screenshots of it and, you know, uh, things where my professor would be like, oh yeah, and here's how you do this. Um, so it's still very new. So I don't, I don't know how much I'm going to end up liking it. Um, gotcha. I may start, oh, oh, that's another thing too. In one of my other classes too, like my teacher, one of the other students were talking about how much they love digital performer. And I was like, fuck, am I going to want to buy digital performer? <laughs> Um, which it is frustrating too, because that is one of the things when I was first trying to pick a DAW, hearing different people talk about it and they're like, yeah, like each one has different advantages and disadvantages. And and it's frustrating because so many of the things I feel like that are advantages in, in some of them, like, like, for example, having the note names written in Cubase, like why don't all DAWs do that? Like, why are they just relying on you looking at the piano on the left? Or maybe some people, if you've been doing it for, for decades, you just instinctively know where they are. And I'm not, again, I'm not used to looking at it that way. Um, but, you know, at least on a staff, you have five lines. And then if you're doing grand staff, you have a break between them. So you have a sense of this is treble clef, this is bass clef. When I'm scrolling through the piano roll, like, again, like it's not unless I look over here and be like, oh, is this C1 or C5? Right. I have no idea what octum I'm in. I have no idea if I'm looking at a bass part or a treble part because it's just this endless row of notes. Um, so it'd be, you know, it'd be nice to have that like in Cubase where I have a frame of reference. I know what the pitches are. Um, but, um, but anyway, yeah. Like, so there are certain things it's like, why don't all DAWs do this? Like that's, it's cool that this one does this thing, but why don't they all do that? Like in, like in logic, like why logic, you can do folders, but why can't they do folders within folders? Like, and like, like one of the things, the reasons why people, um, I don't know if it's a reason why they pick Cubase, but someone like Junkie XL who has, uh, we learned about, he has a template that has like 3000 tracks in it because he has everything just there. And like logic actually has like a limited number. I think you can only do a thousand tracks, which for me right now is more than enough. But the right. fact that they have a cap on it, like, like I understand that you're, it'd be limited by the memory of your computer and your, right. um, you know, your hard drive space, but why is the program limited? Why do they get to a point where it's like, no, we can't handle anymore. Like that should be, to me, that should be a processor issue, not the programs issue, you know, mm-hmm. where you, you hit a wall. Um, 
So, you know, and that's the thing too, is like one of the things I realized is it's not just one track for instruments. Sometimes you need multiple tracks for one instrument. So it's like, you know, if you have violin, you might want a separate track for short notes than you have for long notes, or you might want to have, you know, for every single articulation, a separate track, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages of that. So it's not just like, oh, well, I don't have a thousand instruments. Why do you need a thousand tracks? It's like, I might need 20 tracks for just violin one, you know, like depending on how I set it up or I may have, you know, 20 different violin ones from different sample libraries, you know? So it's not just like, Oh, violin one, violin two, viola, cello, bass. That's only five. There you go. That's the, you know, it's like, no, like for those five instrument families, I may need over a hundred tracks just for them, you know? Right. Um, so, so anyway, so it's just, yeah, it's, it's just frustrating that like there, there are certain things that just like, you can do this here, but you can't do this here, you know? And it's like, I almost wonder if that's what I'm going to run into where I'm going to, if I, if I get good enough at them, I'm going to have to like bounce back and forth. It's like, well, this does this really well, but when I want to do this, I'm going to transfer it over to this or something. Um, which I'd like to not do that. I would like to just get really good at one and be like, okay, here are these shortcomings, but they're not a deal breaker. You know, like I can work around them with this, that, or the other thing, you know, or, or some of the things I've heard people say like, oh, I don't like this because I can't do this. And it's like, Oh, well, I don't need it to do that. So I don't care, you know, like that type of thing. So, um, but yeah, it just sucks that I spent a whole semester getting, I don't want to say really good at logic. So I'm sure there's a bunch of shit I still don't know, but getting way better at logic and then being like, fuck, I can't do a bunch of shit that I would want to do on this. And there's a bunch of shit about the way it's built that just makes me have to work harder and slows me down because I have to think more about stupid things that, you know, again, like when I'm working in Sibelius, I don't have to think, I just read what the notes are, you know, I don't have to look and go like, what note is that? okay, that's C. So that's this, what octave is this in? Okay. That's this. And that's this, you know, like having that kind of, you know, like near infinite piano roll with no frame of reference is just, you know, um, also there's a discrepancy. So like in notation, middle C is referred to as C4 in terms of like what octave it is. And as you go down, the numbers go down and as you go up. So like the lowest, the lowest A on the piano, I think it would be like A0. And then there's, so there's like A, B flat B, and then C, I think that's C1. But with MIDI notes, it's different because the MIDI keyboard extends below the piano. So I think the pitch that on the piano, when you play it, if you played middle C and said, oh, that's C4, I think as far as MIDI is concerned, that's called C5. Right. Which pisses me off. Because it's also, I feel like, I think MIDI will use like a C negative one. So it's like, if you're going to use negative numbers, why didn't you leave C4 where it's supposed to be and then just have negative two if you want to go down that far or whatever? So, so there are dumb things like that. that it's interesting. Awesome. I wonder with like the development of DAWs, because music production was an engineer's game, mm-hmm. I feel like engineers built the software rather than musicians or composers. Right. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. that seems to be like, I, that makes so much sense now that I'm thinking, it's like, this is how you would want to look at it if you were an engineer mixing like there's what the piano looks like you can see all the notes right there what else do you need like it seems like right. very like yeah utilitarian inter like that's a, i'd never really thought about that before well, i also feel like engineers are also dealing with frequencies like below playable notes because you're right. thinking about these sub frequencies and like you know oh and that's another one of the cool things about the the, the eq um plugin that i bought instead of just looking at the, in terms of frequencies, you can actually turn on a piano keyboard that pops up under the frequencies. So like, if you're looking for an actual pitch, you don't have to know what frequency is that pitch. You can look on the keyboard and be like, Oh, that's where that G is, you know? So yeah. So you can see this 
this piano keyboard that extends past, you know, our actual piano, you know, into these frequencies above and below what we can hear that are, that are registering in the music. So I, yeah, I think that's part of it too. And that was something that I first realized actually back when I was in my undergrad, I used to hate Max and it wasn't because I hated Max. It was because when we were learning, uh, the, our, our first dog, which I think back, I think it was cakewalk was like the, this typical dog way back then. Mm. And I think it was mostly made for PC. And then some guy wrote his own version of, of a DAW to use with Mac and cakewalk bought it from him without making it at all user-friendly or whatever. Like he had just written it like, Hey, we need a DAW for Mac so that cakewalk can have a, a Mac DAW for our people mm-hmm. to use. So we're going to buy this and just sell it. And it's, it's a fucking nightmare to use. Cause like they would like, you know, our teacher would show us like, Oh, here's how you would do this in cakewalk. And it's blah, blah, blah. And it's right here. I was like, Oh, okay. Oh, but in this thing, I it was like motor something. I forget what it was called. It's like, you have to go here, here and here and here because the guy who, who wrote this program just put all the stuff where he wanted it, where it made sense to him. And then cakewalk just bought it and sold it. Um, so I was like, fuck that. I don't want to use Macs because this is my only option for using a DAW on Mac. I'm going to go PC so I can have like the actual cakewalk. It's been like beta tested and whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. So for the longest time, that was one of the reasons I was using PCs. Also because our lab, our computers in the, the music lab at URI were all Macs. And I always had the worst time with them, but it took me all to realize it was because art students would come in and just fuck everything up. Yeah. And then we were, as music students, we were supposed to go in there and be like, oh, here's this thing with the keyboard and nothing was connected right or set up right. So it's like, I could never use it the way we we're supposed to be able to work. But once I got my own Mac in my own place that I could set up and no one was going to fuck around with, I was like, oh, this is way better. <laughs> it's crazy to think about Apple before GarageBand because those are so synonymous now. Yeah, like, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Because like that, that was... That's the working man's dog, right? It's GarageBand. Like, that's yeah. free on every Mac. It's free on it. Like, I don't even think you have to pay for it for iPad. I, so yeah. Like it's, yeah, it's there. Yep. It's crazy. Like, the the versatility and, like, kind of the, the trend setting that that it, they really, with the MacBook and the pros, were like, you're an artist. You have the capability of creating music in your hand. Like, that was such a big part of their marketing. It's crazy to think about, like, yeah. They had a janky bootleg version of Cakewalk, yeah. like a proto dot. That's crazy. But it's also cool to see now too. It took me a minute to realize this because I hadn't used GarageBand that much. But like when I finally opened it, I was like, "Oh, this is just Logic Lite." Like that's oh, yeah. also brilliant that they give you this free DAW. That's like, oh, if you get good and hit the ceiling, just buy Logic, and everything you yep. know carries over, and then it opens all these doors to you. I was like, "All right, well done." <laughs> Yeah. Although it is frustrating to go back and try to use GarageBand because then it can't do all the shit that I expected to do that Logic can do. It definitely will clip your wings if you're uh, more experienced. Yeah. Now, I did a lot of recording on GarageBand. Even through my phone, I had a little cable connector. Yeah. I could throw my guitar through stuff. I, I ended yeah. up using like uh, the amp modeler for vocals. It gave it like oh, a really yeah. cool, like crunchy, like harmonica or... Um, uh, bullhorn voice aesthetic oh, it was nice. really yeah. fun. like it's crazy how robust they were yeah well it's also smart too that they're like we're going to give you a set of sampled instruments and you can't add your own but the advantage of that is if you send this to someone else who has garage band they can open it and hear it exactly how you hear it yeah. as opposed to like if i do something with my samples and i send it to someone else like well i don't have these samples so 
you know, the strings sound like shit to me because I'm using this other string library, you know? So like, I thought that was really cool. I mean, again, it was frustrating because it's like, I wanted to use my sounds and I had to instead go in and use all theirs. But like, I could see the advantage of that, especially like if you're just getting started, you have this whole set of sounds you can use. You can send it to your friend and be like, I'm going to record this and send it back to you. It plays the way it's supposed to, you know, like brilliant. It's crazy how accessible they made it. Because even when like those commercials were airing, like I was like in high school, like middle school, high school, early college is like the fact that you could produce music yourself and didn't have to go to a recording studio and you could learn all that shit yourself was crazy to me. I was like, yeah. that would be insane to learn to do that. And then to be able to do it is crazy. Like it's, it's really cool that it's so accessible and it makes sense. Like certain things are laid out and it, there, there's, the building blocks of it is really kind of accessible and a like you can pick it up pretty quickly, which is really crazy. It, it's so cool. Oh yeah, so mixing—that's how we got. I was like, <laughs> I was like, this is last back to last semester stuff. Yeah, so mixing. So so yeah, so I'm 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 really scared about this class. We haven't done any real nitty gritty stuff. Which what's kind of yeah. cool is the way it started was um, one of our first assignments was find a track of yours that you think you mixed well, and then a fine one that you think you didn't mix well and kind of talking about them. And we've actually been coming back to those two pieces where I think at first it was just, um, yeah, it was just like a discussion, like post them and then tell us what you like and don't like about them. And then our end of the week assignment was after he had kind of talked to us about certain criteria and different aspects about mixing. Okay. Now that you know, this criteria now go back again and evaluate those two and say what you did right and did wrong. And, you know, knowing how you mixed it, but also how it sounded in the end, this, that, and the other thing. Um, and I think our assignment for this week also uses those two pieces and adds another layer to it. And like, um, so, so it's really cool. It's, it's nice that it's kind of like going back to, you know, something we're familiar with, not like, oh, here are two different, sim here's a symphony that, you know, is like 20, 30 minutes long. Uh, and here's another recording of the same symphony, compare and contrast the mixing of those two 30 minute symphonies. You know, it's like, fuck, it's like, no, it's like something you're already familiar with that you know intimately, but what would you fix if you could? Why do you like this? What could you have done better? You know, this type of thing. That's a great um, so that's been, for it. Yeah. So that's been a really good approach. It's helped to ease me in a little bit and make me feel a little bit better about it. Um, so, so yeah, so that's, that's been, been good so far. Um, also we, we've had to get, uh, here's like a little aside. We had to get a subscription to title, um, which oh, I didn't wow. realize, but I guess Krista said that's, uh, Jay-Z's platform for, for yep. streaming music, which, um, yeah, I don't know why we couldn't just do Spotify, but I'm like, whatever. Um, but it's actually been pretty cool. They're running a promotion where for the next three months, it's only $2 a month. So I'm like, Oh cool. Like if I don't like this, I won't need it then. But of course I spent like a fucking hour going through and like, you know, when they're like, what music do you like? And picking all my favorite yep. bands, favoriting all my album, you know, um, and I actually stumbled upon um, a bunch of really cool stuff. Like I found the soundtrack to devs is on title. Um, oh, I don't know if it's on Apple music. And I feel like I looked for it on Apple music and it wasn't there or iTunes. Cause I was going to buy it on iTunes. But it's like, ooh, I've been like listening to some of that and digging into it. And what's really cool, I didn't realize. Um, so there, it's it's two guys and then a band I think called Insects who have done the music for for devs. And the, the two guys, the the two composers who aren't a band, they actually did the soundtrack for Annihilation, which I didn't realize. Oh um, shit, that's a great. So soundtrack. so it's kind of cool. Like it led me down this other rabbit hole, and I'm like, ooh, I'm discovering other you know favorite composers and favorite soundtracks now because like I have this access to all this stuff. Um, Dude, you know we are picking apart the Moon Knight 
sound theme song. Yeah. Like the second we get one, like I hope we get more than like a, a title card. I want like more of like hmm. some sort of theme. I'm sure we'll get like a, a hero theme when we get that kind of. Re- That's we didn't even talk. Sorry, we didn't talk about the fact that the mummy wrappings come out of his body and fucking right. possess him like Spawn or Venom. It's amazing. Yeah. It's it's cool, but it's weird. I mean, and that was something I was like curious about. I, I want to see how that plays out because like as far as like his whole like okay is this just in his head so does that mean when these things come out if it's just in his head and wrapped around his body is he just running around like mark specter thinking he's got a costume on but he actually doesn't you know or oh, you know yeah like you said like is there is this actually is a real physical thing like Kanshu is real and there is an actual physical presence and power that he has and that he bestows upon mark so he has supernatural strength and which makes sense because he leaps over a street from building to building so he's gonna have some sort of supernatural abilities but I was thinking about that today. It's like, oh, how cool will it be to be able to listen to like Moon Knight's soundtrack and see what note, like what influences they pull in and where, like, is it going to be like world travel or how, how right. is it going to justify yeah. like the, the Egyptian origin of the character and how are they going to incorporate that kind of instrumentation, which is based on basically just racism, <laughs> like that stuff. Yeah. Like it, well, then, I'm, yeah, I'm really, yeah. Well, because we talked about before when you you had wanted me to write a Moon Knight theme. And, you know, that was part of it is like, I'm not as familiar with his other like human personas. Like I've always been more interested in Moon Knight, you know, the superhero, the sort of, you know, the the hand of Khonshu kind of thing. So that was the the angle I wanted to take with it. But yeah, like, I feel like a lot of it is probably, you know, and kind of what one of the realizations I've had with like film music and TV music is like, if I were to write the theme from that, angle then it's like okay well then you take that melody and those chords and you just you know like i think you had brought this up like oh make it a sax solo and there you go you got the yep. cab driver character you know like you know, <laughs> oh, so, that's right so, we did talk about <laughs> yeah so it's just a matter of like changing the instrumentation to fit that sort of thing but but for me what's inspiring is this yeah this big epic like anti-hero of like oh yeah like you know kind of like like a ghost rider kind of thing like he's fucking people up he's not just saving lives like he's fucking up people who have done bad things like the people are already dead you know and now he's just gonna go you know exact vengeance you know so so that angle of it that it's not like a super heroic captain america kind of thing you know um also, I wanted the idea of like, you know, the cycle of the moon, the 28 days, you know, that yeah. whole thing. Like that was something that I wanted to work into the phrasing and things like that. So, um, you know, that's all the stuff I was interested in. But yeah, it's like if I wrote a Moon Knight theme that was just based on Moon Knight and it said, okay, how do we distill this into a Mark Spector and, and uh, Stephen, what's his name? Grant. Grant and uh, the Jake cab Lockley. driver. Jake Lockley. Yeah. Like how do I represent them through this stuff? So that's that's how I would have... Uh, approached it you know what i know now see now i'm thinking like thematically it'd be cool to come at it from like an echo or like uh yeah kind of echo returning notes and kind of different voicings to represent kind of disjointed fractured identity and then having like if you could follow that disjointed like as the moon is rising and setting or, or having waxing and waning over this kind of progression of like swelling into cacophony and then kind of like there, there's so much you could do thematically with that piece. Now yeah. that I'm thinking about it, it's not just do Arabian nights, <laughs> you know, like it doesn't, it's not just, I always yeah. imagine it over like the, the rolling dunes and like, like 
big reveal of Moon Knight over the the desert sun or yeah. desert dunes, like. But well, it'd be really it was, cool. yeah, it was funny too. You mentioned the idea of like the, the the racism part of it, the idea of like, oh, here's we're gonna do something that's like you know, sort of just steal the style of, of Egyptian music. But I feel like that's that's part of it too. Is like he's not an Egyptian person you know he's an american person who has this thing bestowed upon him so just like he's doing a terrible british (laughs) purpose it's it's not supposed to be what actual egyptian music is it's supposed to be what this american's (laughs) impression of you know egyptian music is um Uh, which is how i would approach it like you know like oh i think this is this sounds egyptian to me you know like that is a lovely argument for appropriation (laughs) that you've discovered (laughs) (laughs) Well, it, it's interesting no, I, Joe. I like that yeah but i mean i won't get into this whole debate though but like my 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 favorite composer uses a lot of um uh you know a lot of elements from music all over the world and you know kind of just combines him into his his music and um for lack of a better term kind of willy-nilly you know like when i was learning a lot of music you know and you you when you learn it from people who either it's their culture's music or someone who's studied the entire culture and how the music is integrated is very respectful of that connection. You know, you kind of develop this reverence for this stuff, but then you just find that like other people are just like, Oh yeah. Shakuhachi. Oh, that's a sacred flute in your culture. I'm putting it in my movie. Cause it sounds cool. You know, like yeah. there is no reverence anywhere, you know, for any of that stuff. And, and it is something I kind of go back and forth with because it's like, it is, um, you know, it's like, I guess the idea of like, you know, music, belonging to people is is kind of weird like and i mean having said that like yes like me being a composer like if i wrote specific music i wouldn't want someone being like no i wrote that music you know and that's the thing is like i'm not trying to say i invented this style of music if i'm obviously referencing you know music of another culture but you know to say like okay so i'm white so i can only ever write country music American patriotic music. <laughs> I can dip into, you know, European classical music. I can do an Irish jig and that's it. That's the only music I can ever write. You know, like, uh, See, Tim, I, mean, I was more thinking about like less, like I was talking about like in film music where <laughs> they were like, why is this the Egyptian song? It just sounds Egyptian. Like where there's no cultural context. So they're just like, why in films does this music mean we're going into Saudi Arabia? It's because they thought that's what it sounded like rather than right. using. That's what I was th- saying more than like, yeah. y- there's a way to integrate and shine light on and pay homage to for sure. Right. Absolutely. And that, that you're right. Like there there's music develops because the, the, the different influences and different instrumentations and different backgrounds of music push together and they spring up and make these new things. Like I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that's the thing too. Like, I guess that's the thing is like, where, like, where's the line between like, yeah, like appropriation or influence or, um, you know, yeah. Like, or I guess for lack of a better term, ignorant influence. Like, right. I think this is what that music sounds like. Um, you know, and, and, and whitewashing it you know like if i if i you know like doing a white person's version of what you know so so that's part of it like i feel like if i if i quote it too too closely is that appropriation but then if i integrate it and do something that sounds kind of like that is that now whitewashing it you know so like 
how how do I get to use it? Um, and I mean, part of it too is like that. I think that's the thing too is a lot of times it's like, oh, there are certain scales that are associated with in certain rhythms. So it's like, okay, are there now rhythms and scales that are off limits? Like, you know, how how does that work? You know, and I mean, that's a bigger discussion to have, you know, right now. But I I, I just also want to say I am aware of that idea of like cultural appropriation. It's not something that I would want to do lightly or or disrespectfully. Um, but it's like, yeah, like I, I, I'm not sure where that, where the line is, where it's right. like, how to, how to use certain things. And, and that's the thing too, like so many, so many different similar things have evolved simultaneously in different locations, you know? Yeah. Um, that's right. like, you know, like there are certain rhythms that are used in many different genres of music through all different cultures. So it's like, okay, are you only allowed to use the ones that show up in every culture or, you know, like, like, there are tons of really cool like meters and rhythms in Indian music, but it's like, okay, am I, if I use those, but in a different setting, you know, like on drum set or, you know, is, is that appropriation? Is that whitewashing this, you know, taking this thing that is very kind of, you know, sacred to them in terms of their classical music and saying like, I'm going to take that idea and manipulate it and use it how I want to over here in my, you know, white ass life, you know, um, so anyway, so yeah, so it's like, I, I know that there's like a, 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 um, a conflict there and, uh, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't have an answer, but I just, you know, just, just to be aware <laughs> that I'm, I, I just to let you know that I'm aware that it's like, yeah, that, that this is something that's not, you know, always cool in all forms. And, I've, and there've actually been discussions in multiple classes I've had. Like I, I took a class at DU that was, uh, uh, uh was it music and, music and belief or something like that in, in world oh, cultures, yeah. I think it was called. And that was part of what they talked about. Cause they're, you know, as we're discussing these different cultures, it's not just the music, but it's how a lot of times music ties into their religion, you know, and, right. and, and, and has very sacred things and which it's, music it's also ritual for sure. Yeah. yeah. And it's also tough for someone like me where it's kind of like, well, I don't really acknowledge the idea that like this sound is sacred. Therefore you can't use it. It's just like, well, I mean, it's, sacred to you and i mean i guess like you know you know and i'd be willing to say say the same thing too like you know if you look at you know like catholic music is associated with like the gregorian chants you know Mm -hmm. but i feel like those can show up in films and those are the hymns that are supposed to be very sacred but they're also used in films and it's like you know so it's like okay should i not use you know so it doesn't have to just something to do with from other cultures right. like within our own culture there is music that's supposed to be sacred and does that mean we don't get to kind of incorporate it and do cool things with it like um i did this thing one time where i took a cd i had it was all gregorian chants and i layered them all on top of each other so it created this big kind of cacophony of like you know and it's basically the idea of like you know um when you do something in excess it kind of loses the the kind of meaning of it you know and it almost started to sound like for lack of a better term, evil, because you're hearing all these voices that are kind of like, you know, like, I, I feel like you've heard scores like that, where it's like, oh, having the many voices in your ears, it, it, it's always, it's, it's always a bad sign. You know, it's, it's never a good thing when you've got multiple voices that you're hearing all simultaneously, you know, Moon so, Knight again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe that's how it's score Moon Knight. It would be like all these multiple, like cacophonous, you know, take four different pieces of music that don't belong together. You know, jazz plus jazz equals jazz, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, yeah. So, so anyway, yeah, like I said, that's, that's a bigger topic. That's, that's not one that we could fit in here or, you know, uh, but 
one that I'm aware of and I'm always kind of thinking about in the back of my mind. Like, yeah, so something like that. How would I write a Moon Knight theme that obviously the, the character has connections to Egypt? So, so what's the appropriate way to have an Egyptian influence without appropriation or whitewashing? You know, how, how do we do that? That's the thing. Like, you, you could give Khonshu a specific theme, like an Egyptian tinge theme, because he's a deity. Like, he's specifically, like, within... I, I, yeah, I, there's there's a, a a line to be drawn about it. But we're, we're much more aware of that in music now more than ever. Just, like, mm-hmm. we're now aware of, like, the suppression of black voices in American music throughout the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Like, the idea that, like, people made songs famous and people never knew who actually originated those songs. Like Elvis is a, right. as a, this huge Titan of music singing black blues been songs, right. blues women too. Like the, the, I, that, so that cop, like we're very much like in, in better, a way better place in terms of that. And like the, the things that we're doing with score now, I mean like the Mandalorian score incredible i don't know like there's definitely influences from all over the place in that like the instrumentation wise there's definitely like there there's ways to do it it doesn't seem to be like and we're now you we're not using music to like stereotype or to like to to comically set the stage for some sort of racist gag too so like Mm. that conversation is way 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 more uh we're more aware, like you said, you're aware of, everybody's aware of it. And like, we, we're, we're doing the things that we need to, to prevent it from being straight up appropriation and damaging and racist and those things. Like, yeah. So it, it's, it's just, just an interesting part of like, especially with film scoring. Cause what you're, what part of what you're trying to evoke is place. And because you have visual aid, you kind of want those to work hand in glove too. So that's, that's also like part of the, the, the painting with, sound yeah yeah you want if you know if there are elements of egypt you want to depict depict egypt sonically somehow you know and yeah um you know even if it's egypt from the perspective of an american i guess you know as part of it you know it's like especially with something like this like like i mean if there was i i I guess that's part of it is i wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable scoring a film that takes place entirely in egypt about a group of egyptian native people you know I, i think that's maybe the distinction is that you know, it's not like, here's an everyday story that takes place in Egypt. Let's get this white guy who has right. never been and have him score these these actual people having actual real life, you know, conflicts and, and struggles and things like that. Um, yeah, that's something I, I, I yeah, I, I would turn that down and be like, I have no idea how to represent these people, you know, appropriately, you know, because, right. you know, like, um, whereas, yeah, like an American who either does or thinks he sees some Egyptian God who's telling him what to do and giving him powers. Like that, I feel like is more my wheelhouse, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, especially again, if Khonshu in his mind, it's his impression of what Khonshu is, which right. is not the real thing. Kind of like when we were talking about um, gods of Egypt. Yes. When they showed <laughs> okay. the earth, it flat, it's like, why is the earth flat? And I was like, well, this is the parents telling their kids this story. So the parents, those those adults think the earth is flat. So that's how they're going to tell that story. So it's not that the, the producers of the film are trying to say the earth is flat. It's like the perspective of that story is coming from people who believe the earth is flat, you know. So so you get that misrepresentation of how things actually are, but it's because of the perspective of the, the narrator, the storyteller, whatever, you know. Right. So I love that you brought up 
gods of egypt i thought you'd like that <laughs> oh i love that movie so much <laughs> yeah i bring up appropriation and then i will stand gods right. of egypt till the day i die i, I <laughs> your faves are problematic <laughs> including me if i'm one of your faves well and this also leads a little bit into the so my my second class one of the ones i'm more um feel a little more comfortable about um, the the compositional voice development in film scoring. Now, already I've had, and I shouldn't say that this blew my mind because I feel like this is a, a shortcoming of mine. But one of the things he he talked about is having like this Venn diagram of, you know, one circle is, you know, your voice, the music you like, the music you write. The other voice is what, uh, I mean, the other circle is what filmmakers are looking for in their score. Right. And he's like, and then, the Venn diagram where it intersects, that's all the stuff that's still part of you. That is what the, the directors want. And for the past, since 2014, I've been either actively, actively or subconsciously trying to suppress my voice, thinking that here's this circle by itself. It's what they want. And you have to do everything they want and nothing else. Like it never occurred to me that there could be aspects of the music that I enjoy writing that is going to be what they want and that there is a crossover. So gotcha. already, like, I, I, I feel like I'm just like, I don't want to say better than I was because I'm not better, right. but like my way of thinking about this is, is, has changed drastically. Yeah. It's not a matter of, ignoring everything that i am and just doing what they want it's finding the parts of what i am to see what of that appeals to them um so that i feel like just in and of itself is going to kind of blow the doors off like the stuff i'm working on again not not necessarily make it better but but um make it so that um you know like it won't be such a struggle to me like okay what is it you're looking for let me try this style let me try this style it's like well here's here's all the things that i can do also, the fact that they, they've they've been digging into like what's the music you listen to, what's the music you like, where did you go to school, what you know, a lot of it's talking about um, being influenced not just by like the artists you like, but also by the communities you're in, you know, and like a lot of what he keeps coming back to is you know he got his undergrad at Eastman, which is like a conservatory, versus doing film music stuff. So like a lot of what his professors at Eastman we're expecting is opposite ends of the spectrum from what directors and, you know, other film composers are into and are expecting music to be. Um, so, you know, that being another big part of it too, but within those worlds, you know, you still kind of learn things and, you know, and, um, you know, not, not necessarily that you should cast off everything you learn from the conservatory, you know, about like this certain style of music, but, taking those parts that you enjoy and you appreciate and integrating that and see if there's a way to apply those to the film scoring stuff, you know, which is something I've always wanted to do. I mean, that's one of the, one of the things that I like best about the matrix soundtrack is that there's a ton of elements of like, you know, contemporary composition, you know, like stage music or, you know, like it's academic view, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, like Planet of the Apes, for example, like that score also has elements of like, quote unquote, academic music in it that I won't go into detail about. But, you know, like finding ways to apply those to film music in such a way that actually works, which, you know, has been my kind of belief all along is that like that type of music is not something that's like, oh, that's just for academics. It's like, no, those people are taking this, these concepts and composing them in an academic way 
but you could also do it in a way that is more more visceral and more making more connections, you know, and things like that. Um, you know, it's also maybe just kind of rethink like. Uh, and w- one of the points I made in this week's discussion post where he was saying something about, oh, oh he had these, this list of like 11 questions and it was like asking all this stuff. And then l- question 11 was like, how much of an influence does all of your background and all these sources have on your music? And my answer was not enough. Like I'm not integrating all these different things about music and art that I love into the music I'm producing. I'm just trying to be this generic composer to fit this film for what I think this director wants, not to be, okay, let me pull out all the best parts of me and you tell me what parts of me you like for your film, you know? Um, so it was really cool to, to kind of think back and be more consciously about like, what's all the music that I like and why am I not putting that sort of stuff into the music that I'm producing, you know, like, you know, and like one of them was like, what instruments do you play? Like what music have you studied? And I kept thinking back to like my undergrad where, you know, as soon as I got there, I was like, I want to learn how to play the marimba. Like, you know, we never had a marimba at my high school. We had, you know, xylophone and bells and chimes, but I was like, I want to learn solos on marimba. And I just dove into that and I was learning so much stuff. And there's so many film composers who make use of that. Like the one that comes the most to mind is um, uh, Thomas Newman, who did like the score to like American Beauty. Uh, he did the okay. theme to Six Feet Under. He did um, uh, Road to Perdition. Uh, there was, I feel like there was another score where he like features marimba prominently. I mean, there's like usually tons of reverb on it and everything, but like, mm. it's all these kind of like cool little like rhythmic, you know, like, like marimba grooves. It's like, I used to love playing music like that. Like, why am I not writing music like that? You know, like, why am I not incorporating that into like what I'm doing, you know? Um, so, so it's really cool. Like, and even just, like I said, halfway through week two, like my brain is already churning with like, you know, not not necessarily learning new stuff, but digging up all the stuff that I, or, you know, Rush is another example. Like I love their music. I feel like their style of music has such a place in film music in, in various ways because so much of it tells stories, you know? So it's like, why am I not incorporating more prog rock into my, my, you know, film composition, you know, like, um, and it's you know, I mean, so I... cool to see the fires lighting behind your eyes. Like, yeah. it's so cool. Like, it, like, this is like, I'm so excited to hear your stuff go. Cause you're, it's going to be fucking incredible. I'm so excited. Like you, you're not, you're not having to compromise your voice anymore. You would, you would yeah. put yourself in a box and sometimes you need to hear somebody outside say, why aren't you doing what you want to be doing? Yeah. And when you finally realize that that's, that you haven't been, it's like, it's a huge deal. That's yeah. really cool, man. Yeah. And, and it's cool. And that's the difference too, to have someone who is a, you know, working in, 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 you know, film composer who's working and teaching say, yeah, like your voice is important, you know, as opposed to, you know, again, like, I, like up until now, it's been all YouTube and directors that I've dealt with, you know, like right. what, what any, any a-hole on YouTube is going to say and, and trying to make the director I'm working with happy, you know, I kind of, that's what I stumbled upon is just like, all right, do what they want, you know, as opposed to like, yeah, no, like, like take the things that you like and put that into your music and, you know, find some combination of that to deliver to the director, you know, um, and, and yeah, like, and I mean, looking back on a lot of the film stuff I've done, like a lot of it is, it's, it's me trying to be like as basic as possible, you know, not trying to find a creative solution to what they want, you know, that only I can give them, you know? So, 
so yeah, so I think that's going to be really cool. Um, I'm looking forward to playing around with that. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to like, yeah, like digging into, you know, like instead of having like a cheat sheet of like, Oh, you know, I mean, not that I need a cheat sheet of music theory and scales, but like, I feel like that's usually where my brain goes like, okay, I have to score this scene. What scale, what chords am I going to use with this? What about that? It's like, no, how about, you know, what, what types of music do you like that might, you know, should it be like a prog rock guitar, you know, lick in seven, eight, would that work here? Or what about this little minimalistic rhythm, you know, marimba groove, would that work here? You know, like, like those type of things, like the stuff that, you know, when I want to listen to music that I gravitate to, you know, so, so I think that's a lot of, you know, what I'll be trying to do next, instead of thinking of it from, from like a theory perspective, from like a more of, I guess, like a stylistic perspective, or like an an inspiration perspective. Um, So yeah, that's gonna be really cool. And uh, yeah, so, so our first assignment at the end of the week of last week was to write an essay about what we consider to be good music and what our criteria is for good music. And, and he, you know, he had kind of taught us about like, this is, this is, these are a bunch of ways that people will choose to, to critique music. And, you know, and like one of them, for example, is like style. Many people are like, I like classical music and that's it. Anything that's not classical music is garbage, you know, like, you know, um, or I'm guilty of this, you know, I like everything but country, you know, it's like nothing country could ever be good. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, different in different, and I've heard one, another thing too, is like talking about, you know, is dynamic contrast a good thing or some people like music that is just fucking full tilt all the way across. Like, you know, right. if you're doing like, you know, like, like dance music, it's like, yeah, it just has to be high energy all the time. And it's like, you know, but is that, is that good music? And, you know, then also context comes into play with that. And like, you know, what type of, you know, harmonic language, what type of chords do you have to have? You know, obviously the, the harmonic language of pop music is very different from the harmonic language of jazz music, you know, is all pop music bad because it doesn't use jazz chords and jazz music is good because it uses those chords, you know, like, um, oh, and you'll be happy. So one of the things we had to do is to post two examples of what you think are, are, are good music, you know, and why you think this is good music, explain what is good about it. So uh, the two I picked were the right of spring and seven nation, seven nation army. Oh, because, wow. And I basically, I, I would basically said like, you know, I, I don't like most of what the white stripes do. And I you know part of me doesn't want to like this song, but I can't help but like this song and like to kind of break it down and be like, what makes this different from other white stripes song and what makes it effective and what makes it like where it's like, yeah, I can't help but like this song, you know, and that type of thing. So it was kind of, it was neat to kind of dig into that a little bit. And, um, you know, I like listened to it a bunch of times. I was like, okay, going, you know, the form of it going from this section to this section. And, you know, you know, of course, like there's plenty of repetition, but there are, ways that he plays with the repetition and builds on the repetition and how the drums add to that. And there's slight moments of contrast where he actually has those two power chords in between the little lick that kind of break it up just enough so that when you hear it again, you're like, Oh yeah, back to the groove. Okay. You know, like, so it was really cool to take apart that song and be like, yeah, this is why this is a good song. It has all of these elements to it, you know? Um, So yeah, so it was, it was kind of fun. And also to pair that with rite of spring, which is like, opposite end of the spectrum you know it's like right you know an uh, exercise in excess you know <laughs> and like right. yeah. whereas like you know seven nation army is like there's you know there's four elements and that's it but like the yeah. way the it's way primary he... colors man that yeah. that that song is so so bare bones and so like yeah that's that's awesome that's so cool i'm thinking about like the, the things that i like in music and i'm like i am a sucker for a groove when something gets into something that's like just 
I don't know, it's on the back beat and you kind of lay into it. It makes you do mm-hmm. that thing. That's the shit that I really gravitate towards. Tyna and I talk about this all the time. She really likes music that has kind of like really stark contrast and will go through movements mm-hmm. and give you really kind of dramatic differences and surprise you, which is really cool. That's something like I've been re-listening to OK Go. I think OK Go is probably like my secret favorite band that I forget about because every time I go back mm-hmm. into this, like, yeah, they were the video guys and they that was their in, but the songs are killer and the yeah. way that they build stuff the the way their instrumentation works and the way they songwrite is they'll send you in one direction and then they'll surprise you and make you laugh and turn you in the other direction and it's nice. brilliant like those guys like so that it's really cool to think about like what is it about the music that you like probably the thing i like about aerosmith is like grooves and raunchy silly lyrics like mm-hmm. that shit like it's that's I would not have thought about those elements without that question prompt. And that's, that's really cool to think about. Yeah. And, and what that led to, so the last thing I'll talk about with this class was, so today we had our live zoom class and he gave us sort of what he came up with for his criteria of good music. And he's like, it took me three years to kind of whittle this down and craft oh, wow. it and perfect it. Um, and basically there are six points, but what, what he uses it for, is, I mean, you know, it's helpful when you're listening to something to say like, oh, I like this. Why do I like it? And kind of point to those things. But mostly what he learns it for, what he uses it for, and I think what he's teaching us about it for is it's a way to kind of critique your own music and say like, how do I know when a piece of music is done? And it's like, if you can go through it and say it hits all these boxes, then wow. it's, it's a good piece of music. You know, other people are going to like it, dislike it. You can't control wow. that. But a way for you to quantify whether what you did, like, is an example, you know, like, is, um, you know, is it something that you've put together, like, with the integrity to say, like, yes, I've produced the best possible thing in this that I can do. Um, I'm writing this shit like, down, yeah. dude. That yeah. broke my brain. Like, see, I need to write it down because it's like, it's when this class is done, I'll send you the workflowy, and then you have to get workflowy to be able to read it. <laughs> so I don't, I don't want to say his six things on here because they're his. And he actually right, said, right, right. I don't tell everybody this. This is sort of, I saved this for my classes. So I don't want it to be like him be like, hey, I saw your podcast and you're know, like, talk about my shit, but I will send it to you. But, um, but yeah, like it's, it's, it's great. Cause like everything he said, like I agree with, and it's like, yeah, like that all makes sense. And it's like, um, and it distills it to kind of these, these kind of broad elements that, you know, any style of music can kind of apply to that, you know, or, or that can be applied to, um, and it gives you room to, you know, write many styles of music within those criteria, you know, yeah. um, so, so yeah, so it was, it was really cool, really helpful. Again, like another way to like think about my own music and, you know, how to approach it, but without, it was kind of like with my, one of my teachers at DU, like his big thing was about kind of like momentum, you know, to narrow yeah. it down to one word, you know, and it's like, especially like in, in tonal music, you know, the momentum is built into the, the harmony and how one chord is supposed to move to another chord, which is supposed to move to the next chord. Right. It's that harmony that propels it forward. But when you're dealing with modern music and you're not using those traditional chord types, how do you create momentum? How do you drive the music forward? Um, you know, some types of music will just be like, Oh, a quarter note in the bass drum. It's like, well, that's, that to me doesn't create drive. It creates more like, um, I don't want to say stagnation because that is a, a negative connotation. Like I love a quarter note on the bass drum, but it's, it's, I mean, to me, it's like a heartbeat. Like you, your heart can be beating and you can be sitting still. You're not moving forward just because your heart is beating. 
you know, so there has to be other things that propel things forward. And that's a lot of what he talked about is, you know, kind of building tension that needs to be resolved in other ways than just traditional harmony. So that was kind of one of the big takeaways from him and, you know, and, and form, you know, he wasn't like, you need to use these chords and not these chords and use these instruments, not these instruments. It was like, your music has to like drive forward. Like people need to feel like it's going somewhere and they want to see where it's going, you know? Right. Um, and that you don't do the, th- the thing, the, the same thing for too long and they get bored and want to go somewhere else. You want to keep their interest and move forward. So, so with his thing, it seems like this is more like the core, you know, takeaway is like, you can do whatever you want stylistically. And, and, you know, you can use whatever scales you want, whatever instruments you want, whatever chords you want, whatever style, it could be pop, it could be classical, whatever. But it, as long as it's meeting these criteria, you will build like a good piece of music, you know? Um, and it's kind of cool too, because there were a few places I found online that would talk about like, oh, this is the formula for writing a good song, which specifically was for pop music. And it was kind of really helpful because you're like, yeah, like most pop songs that I like fit this criteria. And a lot of it, again, had to do with form, how you move through the form and how those sections contrast each other and this, that, and the other thing. Right. So there's kind of some of that in his thing too, where it, it can be pop music, but it can be classical. It can be film music, but it's again, like how you're moving through things and how things are interacting with each other and how, um, you know, like, yeah, again, regardless of, of style or genre, whatever you want to call it, you know, like the, the, the structure and the way things are put together, I think, you know, yeah. Like, Oh, like one of the things we talked about in class is the idea of repetition versus constant development. You know, like there are styles of music that like, we want zero repetition, you know, never repeat the same thing. It always has to be changing, you know, but then there's nothing people can kind of latch, latch onto. Whereas, you know, some types of music have too much repetition and you get bored, you know? So it's like, how do you kind of find the happy medium between those two things? So, um, so yeah, so that, that class has been super like inspiring, super like, you know, you know, yeah, like digging into my own past, you know, I'm, I'm doing very little memorization and much more introspection in this class, which yeah. is really cool. Dude, the, the idea of a checklist of things that you appreciate about an art form as the checklist for when you know it's done is incredible. I, that's my biggest problem. Well, also getting started. That's also like its own issue. But like once you're started and you're into it, like I, whenever I watch like those craft videos of like people doing woodwork, I'm like, how do you know when you're done scraping away the excess? And how do you know when it's there? And it's just like, well, okay, it's a hammer. Does it look like a hammer? Does it feel like a hammer? Does it hold weight like a hammer? Is it going to, so when it does all those things, it's a hammer, you're done. So that is blowing my mind. I'm thinking about that. Like with my writing, it's like, I'm always at a loss. It's like, okay, I've edited it. I say that five times fast, (laughs) edited it. But like, it's like, I need to just, okay. Is it coherent? Did you make a joke you wanted? Did you (laughs) say something in a way that nobody had before? Did you connect with like, just those things, the things that you, does this have a line that makes you really sit back? Like that's, I, that's going to change how I do everything. Dude, that wow. Yeah. Yeah. And make and, a list and, my I, whole life and I haven't made the important ones. What the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I mean, yeah, same thing. It's like I had to I had to drop, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to be like, I'm gonna do this Berkeley thing to have this one thing be like, 
fuck, if I knew this like 20 years ago, like maybe I wouldn't need to be going to school right now. You know, like who knows? Since you're, since you're giving me tidbits of it, I'll, I'll start paying you back with like meals. Let, we'll, no, we'll, yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, don't, do, don't pay me because then I think that's when I can get sued when I'm just oh, like. okay. No, nothing has changed hands. This is yeah. just a free exchange of ideas. Nobody's right. making anybody about <laughs> right now. I'm not right giving away any specific trade secrets. <laughs> But well, on the Patreon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's another thing too. Like we were, t- you know, we were talking about before about like world music. It's like, you know, it's like when they talk about like when, like, say you, you know, you write a paper and you're supposed to cite all these sources, and it's like, well, most of what I like, say, I was going to write a, a paper on music theory. Like, I could write a ton of shit on music theory, like from my own mind, because I've learned it from other sources but now it's like am i supposed to cite every theory book i've ever read because now the knowledge that's in my head has come from somewhere you know like at what point does that get to be my knowledge that i can pass on freely and not have to be like wait you can't tell this person about this because you learned about this from this person in this class you know and and that's why i'm trying to be like more vague and like i said i'm not going to just list all the points that he had because that's like his thing but it's like am i am i am i also you know, by talking about, like I said, even the Venn diagram, is that copyrighted material that belongs to this Berkeley class? That's like, you can't tell other people that they're supposed to be finding a balance between who they are and what other people want them to be. And that there's, there's overlap and live in that overlap instead of changing who you are, you know, to be what they want you to be. It's like, fuck, that's mind blowing. Like, I feel like shit like that shouldn't be so esoteric, you know, like where it's like, Hey, you got to be in, you know, let everyone else just fucking either sell out or not be successful. You know, like you're trying to hold on to these pieces of information so that only you have this secret and that you can be successful by using that. So so I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't know where the line is. Maybe I'm crossing it, but we'll stop talking about that class and go on to my last class, which is composing the orchestral film score. So again, this is another one that like it's it's composition based. So I get to actually yeah. write some stuff. Um, what's really cool too is it is geared towards um, film scoring. And so like, for example, one of the things we're working on now is how to write a melody, which like, you know, I've, and I'm not one of those people say, I know how to write a melody. It's like, I've written some good melodies, but I've written plenty of shitty melodies. I don't know how to write a melody that's, you know, successful. Like I've written some that I like, some that I don't like, you know, I feel like that's, you know, super subjective, but in terms of within the context of film scoring, you know, part of the way he puts it is that a, write a successful melody. And, you know, in terms of film scoring, what a successful melody is, is one that's catchy, you know? So it's like, of course, we're doing a lot of John Williams, like all of his themes, like you remember, you can hum coming out of the, like, that is, that is a successful melody. You know, you may not like it. You may not be, you know, you may have done something different, but you can't ignore the fact that other people can sing it after one or two times hearing it, you know, and that they will instantly associate that melody to that experience, that film, that character, whatever. So it's it's interesting that he's breaking it down in terms of of that you know because like in you know in classical composition we've learned about what a good melody is and like analyze other composers who have written good melodies and what characteristics they have like oh a balance between stepwise motion and leaps you know it's like too much of one thing you know if it leaps all over the place it's too disjunct if it's just stepwise it's too boring and static you know so it's like okay yeah like there are elements of that so it's like you can apply that but also 
again, we're looking for something in a film that's going to be a character, a theme for a character or, or a situation probably. And people need to instantly recognize that when that comes back to represent that character again. So how do you specifically write a melody that's going to serve that purpose? Not just, well, you know, and, and, and again, you know, this is where I, you know, I'm also thinking, well, there's the Venn diagram. I don't have to write a melody that I hate just because it will be memorable. I can write a melody that I like that's also memorable by using these tools, but also, you know, making the choices that, that, that I want to make, but within these parameters, you know, and so it's talked about like how to use rhythm and, you know, phrasing and things like that. And, you know, some of it is not like mind blowing, but it's also just like, okay, like, again, like, part of why I'm doing this program is like, I don't want to learn composition. I want to learn composition for film. So right. this doing that is specifically saying like, and not that they've done this, but they could say like, okay, here are all these classical pieces that could have arguably wonderful melodies, but they might not work for films because they're too long or they have too many chromatic right. notes or whatever, you know? So it might be effective in terms of a, a, you know, for a symphony, but not for a film score, you know? So making that distinction and, and, and how to, to build from that. And so say, okay, I'm going to set out to build a melody that will be catchy. And like, this is what to avoid and this is what to focus on. And this is, you know, um, so, so that's really cool. That's kind of, you know, again, it's, it's a little, it still is composition, but it's that, that craft a little bit, but it's still like, I get to, again, now that I know about the Venn diagram, I don't have to just be like, I hate this melody, but it'll get me an A, you know, it's, it's not right. about that. It's about you can, you can write a melody that you will like that will also get an A, you know? So that's going to be really um, fascinating. Like, I'm wondering yeah. if they'll have like what a typical length of a scene is or mm. with sp- certain pannings in terms of like the motion of the camera. Are there certain musical constructions that work better with that work worse than that or establish tension in a certain way? Like dude, mm-hmm. like this being another aspect of how the a, a film is composed and all these things working together towards a certain end is fascinating. That's going to be so much yeah. fun. And well, yeah, like I mean, what, yeah, figuring out like what, what, how long a melody should be for a movie, like in right. terms of like that, on an average or like, is it, is it more or less than normal? Like that, that's going to be fascinating. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's even done a little of that where like one of the first things we was talking about is like, you know, if you're doing an exterior wide shot of like a landscape, like that's when you usually go full till full orchestral, because it's like, you want to sort of, you know, give the scope of the scenery you're looking at. Whereas like if you're inside at a table with two people talking, you know, obviously it has to be quieter because you're dealing with dialogue, but you also probably will thin out the instrumentation a lot because, you know, you want to represent this more intimate texture as opposed to full orchestra, you know, full tilt, but, oh, we'll just turn the volume down. Like, no, like that's not going to fit two people having a conversation, you know? Right. That's where marimba comes in. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be your mistress, marimba. (laughs) Um, So, and what's cool about this class too, is our, so for our final project. So he's given us, we have a choice between two different scenes. Now they're not actual film scenes. It's more like he gives us a rundown with like seconds, you know, it's sort of like a theoretical scene. And part of why he did this is that, you know, if we were going to use real scenes, you have to deal with like licensing. If you want to like right. post it on your website or whatever. So I think he said they'd done that before we would rescore a scene from another film, but then it's like, well, now I can't show this film because I don't have the rights to the film. So instead right. he just does it. We're like, here's a pretend scene from a film gives you the criteria and sort of some rough timings is like, Oh, after so many seconds, this happens. And we have to write a score for one of those scenes 
and it's going to be uh, recorded by um, uh, by an orchestra in Budapest. So, so we have oh, to wow. like zoom with like fucking this Budapest orchestra or or Budapest, however it's pronounced. Whether you want to go with uh, you know uh, Hawkeye or Black Widow's pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> and what's cool? At first, I was kind of disappointed, but it's only winds, brass, and strings. So oh. the percussion is all going to be from our sample libraries, which at first I was like, but then I was like, well, logistically, I mean, I, I know how composers write for percussion is every, every different composer is going to have 20 instruments they want to use and they're different from the person before them. So to be right. a percussionist for this, this type of thing, you'd have to have like a million percussion instruments. Right. So the fact that they don't have to worry about percussion and then we get to layer as much percussion as we want. Um, and part of the, the final thing is we actually have to mix both of those together in Pro Tools. So it's like, oh, good thing I'm taking that other class that's teaching me Pro Tools. So, so yeah, they're going to record that to you know the click track that we kind of create and everything. And then um, we've got to have like our percussion that gets added later and mix that so it actually sounds like it's all the same thing. Um, and yeah, like we're going to be like, you know, watching through Zoom and communicating with, I guess they have like a Berkeley liaison who's going to be there kind of like, commuting from, a, okay, okay, have the orchestra do this, do this instead, you know, that type of thing. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I think they usually get, to, they usually try to do about five takes, something around there. It's, it's, a, it's a minute and a half long clip that we have to do. Okay, gotcha. So they're going to, you know, they try to do about five takes, you know, depending on how prepared you are and how well it works. Um, and then they, I assume, I think they give you all the recordings and you can actually also pay, I think they said it's like for $40 extra, they'll, they record video of the session, so you can take, and the, the impression I get is they have four different angles and they send you all of them. And I think you can go in probably in Pro Tools and mix your own sort of video recording of the orchestra playing and That's when you amazing. change cameras and this and that. So that when you put it on your, your reel, it's like, oh, here's this video of a record of an orchestra performing this thing I wrote and, you know, get all fancy. Oh, horn solo. Let's just show the horn now. You know, that type That's of thing. That's awesome. So that's, that's my so final. Cool. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Which again, I'm a little scared about that. Cause I'm just like, Holy shit. Like that's a, that's a lot. But the great thing about it is that like, you know, as they're going into it, it's like by this date, you have to have the full score finished and submitted. And, you know, then you have to do the parts. I'm like, yeah, that's where I live. Like I spent all last semester not touching Sibelius because I had to learn everything that I sucked at. And now I get to actually go back to Sibelius which I'm good at and be like, yeah, that part is no problem. And then actually be able to focus on the composition, knowing that I can deliver a good Sibelius score. You know, that's, that's not yeah. something new to me. That's something I have decades, you know, I have tens of years of experience. <laughs> so literally so tens of people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's the thing I'm psyched about with that is that I'm not, I don't have to be scared about how I have to, I mean, again, I'm scared about the pro tools end of it. But at least that comes after the recording, you know, like that's um, that's sort of, you know, like, OK, here's this really good orchestral recording. Here's this percussion stuff that I've already kind of prepared. Let me like stick them together, you know. Um, I'm so excited to listen to that final project. <laughs> yeah. So and the one I'm picking, what it is, it's something uh, like one was just like a, a sort of detective car chase kind of thing, which I was like, Ooh. OK, that's kind of cool. The other one is a, a sci fi thing where there are some aliens built a base on the moon and there's this uh um i don't don't know if she's it's almost like a captain marvel kind of thing it sounds like where she's like this air force fighter pilot and she's like recruited to try to fight the aliens and she realizes like something about the aliens where uh 
she sees, I think that's why they built it on the moon, but she sees that there are these solar flares on the sun. So she like tips her, her jet or spaceship. So it's reflecting the solar flares onto the dark side of the moon, which like blows up all their shit. And then it's like her flying around the earth and everyone kind of like a big independence day. end of the thing where they're showing scenes all over the world, that type of thing. So it's like, yeah, I'm going to do that one. (laughs) That's amazing. Oh, dude, dude, it's going to be so, so sci-fi amazing. Yeah. So do you have a favorite sci-fi film composer? I mean, I don't know. I would kind of consider Matrix to be sci-fi. Like I think yeah, that's one of the sure. things that's a that's appealed to me about it is like it does have that sci I mean, I tend to with with film music, I tend to go more uh more fantasy. Um, because that's usually more where you get the lush orchestral stuff as opposed to sci-fi tends to be um Right, more electronic or yeah. sparse or I, I, I do um I like the was it Blade Runner twenty forty nine? Is yeah. that the yeah. Like I, I like that score a lot. I like um I feel like we're in a in in a, a sort of synthesizer renaissance now where I feel yeah. like we've you know, we've gone through like the eighties where it's like let's try everything and it's like wow, so much of that sounds like shit. And I feel like we've gone through a point where it's like, oh, this is these are this is how to create sounds on synthesizers that can actually have, you know, some, some warmth to it. You know, they're not just sort of the generic sounds you've heard. So, um, well, you know, example, like the, um, I forget their names, but the two composers for, uh, Annihilation, like mm-hmm. that score was great. You know, again, yeah. that's a, a great example of like, you know, using, um, using synths as this kind of otherworldly element, which I like, not just like, Oh, it's in the future. Therefore synthesizers. It's like, well, I would hope that in the future we still have orchestras, you know, we still have string instruments and we, you know, and I feel like strings always tend to represent like human emotions in that sense. And it's like, I hope we, even though it's in the future and everything's neon, we still have the same human emotions. So I feel like strings are not inappropriate if you're scoring something in the future, you know? Um, but, uh, uh, what was the other, I, um, yeah, I don't know. Like there, I mean, there aren't, I mean, there are plenty of sci-fi films that I like. I don't know that I necessarily like probably as soon as we're done, I'm going to think of a bunch of them. Um, I mean, I yeah, like, you know, like I like Terminator. I consider that sci-fi, although I feel like a lot of like, especially with Terminator two, it's more known for its songs than its score, you know, um, you know, stuff like that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe I should probably dig into some. Well, and that's part of it too. Is like we're we're also writing for an orchestra, you know. So it's not like, you know, if someone was like score my sci-fi film, and it was they were like, I want synths. Like, okay, I would dig into some of that stuff. But yeah, I guess part of this would be like, okay, like I need to do sci-fi, but it has to be orchestra style sci-fi. So yeah, maybe I'll probably listen to the soundtrack to Independence Day, you know, yeah. which is actually one that I own and it was one of my favorites for a while. I was listen, I would listen to it all the time because it does have it does have a very good mix of that sort of you know, patriotic, you know, uh, this is the world versus like the scary alien sci-fi part of it. So um, you might want to like, I was thinking Armageddon too. Like I'm thinking like Zemeckis and Michael Bay. I'm thinking like the big world ending, like those, look at those scores. Cause I mean, I, I couldn't hum a note of them, but I know that like the moments that they are helping were helped by the score. So uh, that, that's going to be, dude, I'm so excited for that. That's going to be yeah. great. Final well, and product. Like, part of what I want to do, like one of my favorite things to do with live instruments is to use all these like extended techniques, like weird ways of playing the instrument that are not traditional, that there are sample libraries that do that, but a lot of time they, they just pre-record something 
And it's not that they've sort of sampled every single note using this particular technique so that you can then build your own thing. It's like, oh, here's this cool effect that we did. It's like, okay, I can sort of put that in my film. But it's like after a while, people start recognizing, oh, yeah, that's that sample from that specific library, you know, not just the music that you've written. So, but the fact that I have live instruments where I can tell them specifically, like, do this effect and play these notes and do this, like, you know, that's, that's one of my favorite things with orchestral music because like, and, you know, and for a while I was, I don't want to say anti-electronic music, but there's so many sounds beyond just what we're used to hearing with like acoustic instruments that we can actually produce, you know, when you stretch the limits of what those instruments can do. I mean, that's one of the reasons, you know, like George Crumb and Christoph Penderecki, my two favorite composers, like that's, you know, one of the, their bread and butter is like making an orchestra not sound like an orchestra, you know, like, right. like this is, this is not Mozart, you know, like you're not listening to beautiful strings and beautiful woodwinds. Like you're listening to stuff going, what the fuck is that noise? And it's like, that's a violin making that noise somehow, you know? And it's right. like, fuck, how do they do that? I want to make that sound, you know? Um, and that's one of the big parts of the, the, the 20th century that I love, you know, that kind of, I feel like it kind of happened parallel to electronic music where it was like, oh, electronic music, we can make all these sounds no one's ever heard before. And it's like, we can do that too with these instruments. It's just no one's ever done it before. You know, like, oh, like, you know, take your trumpet and tap the mouthpiece with your hand. You make this pop, 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 pop kind of sound. Don't do it too much though, because the mouthpiece will get stuck in the trumpet. But like, <laughs> you know, there, there are so many different ways you can make sounds with acoustic instruments and um, that was one of my favorite things. And, but, but again, yeah, you need live performers for that usually right. because they're the ones who are going to, you know, again, like they usually don't build a whole, they'll build a whole sample library based on the most beautiful string sound ever, you know, every note meticulously sampled. But if you're like, I want to take this strings and make it sound like crap, do that. Oh, well, we're not going to bother doing that on every, we'll, we'll do it as an effect. We'll do it, you know, three different times in three different ways with this crappy sound. I mean, it's not crappy, but you know, and you can use that. You can use that recording. But now you have the all computer composers using those same three sounds if they want that effect to have, you know. So that's what I'm looking forward to is like, okay, the aliens, like what are all the different sounds I can think of that can be made by the orchestra that are not traditional just pitches, you know, like and you know, incorporate that for the alien sounds and then have, okay, like all this, you know, the triumphant fanfare, that's the human sounds, that's the the triumph, you know, that type of stuff. So so yeah, the wheels are already, already turning and, you know, and, and again, like I said before, I'm already applying like, oh, this is all the stuff I used to really love about music before I kept trying to think I have to write music the way someone else wants me to write it. So it's like, this is, you know, getting back in that headspace of like, I'll probably listen to a ton of George Crumb and Penderecki and be like, okay, what are the types of things that they're doing that I can maybe get this orchestra to do with, like I said, five takes, you know, it's like, you don't want to go too far. Cause if it's too difficult, then they'll just, it'll be a shitty recording. But like, you know, like that was one of the things that I was, I wanted to be a goal for me is to try to make music sound like chaotic and complicated, but not actually be difficult to perform, but to give that impression. If that's like sort of this texture that you want, you know, um, right. cause there are some composers who, when they want chaos, they will meticulously notate all this stuff. But like, if you don't play it perfectly, then when you're supposed to land on this moment of clarity, everyone hits it at a different time and it's, it's right. fucked up, you know? Whereas if you can, you know, do this chaos in such a way that it's, you know, Oh, that's all you want me to do. Okay. Yeah. I can do that. No problem. Okay, good. Do that. And then when you see this big downbeat, stop, you know, like those type of things. So looking forward to playing around with that. It's so cool. It's like you're getting, I don't know. It's like you're getting to play in the sandbox again. You yeah. Know? Like it's like you, you were taken home and you forgot about the sandbox. It's like, well, 
that's not I, I can't make sandcastles yeah. in there anymore. I got to make sandcastles that I think the man wants. So I'll make right. them over here. Do your chores. <laughs> right. And you get you get to play in the sandbox again, man. That's uh it's so cool. Like that's awesome. So yeah. <sighs> <laughs> I think that's about enough of that, Tim. I I we that was a good one. We yeah. I'm 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 happy. So we did have an idea that goes nowhere early on. What did we what did we say? There was something we mentioned it was like, yeah, that's our idea that goes We were nowhere. talking about how to work Cross penance over. into the MCO MCU. Yeah. And that's then right. uh, so yeah, we yeah. got to I got to talk about Moon Knight and Penance and you broke my brain with something that's gonna make me more creative. Dude. <laughs> this is a free podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Not for much longer. We keep dropping gems like this. We're gonna have to start charging. Yeah. <laughs> you did not put in on this. <laughs> <laughs> You didn't put in on this, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I think that's just about enough of that. And here's Ghost Tim with the final word. Conchu. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs> Bye. I'm so excited, man.